I really liked the whole like um, uh, Sarlacc pit scene. Like that was fucked up. That was I, like that was like okay, cool. Although it does, bo- okay, maybe maybe you have some thoughts on this. Like the the jumpsuit he wears under the armor, isn't it like gray? Not quite. Like in the original trilogy, well, not the original trilogy, but like. Well, I, my my thought on that was it's a throwback to the original suit, like the the concept art suit mm-hmm. they did that was all white, but also like Sarlacc acid and double Tatooine sun bleached. That's why I think it's white. I don't think it has anything to do with like them changing the concept. I think it's just like he's sitting out in the sun and just it fucking pulled all the color out of it. I mean, I guess, but like, I, I think when he was coming out of the sand, like, you know, his glove, I remember it being like gleaming white. And that was, I think the first thing that caught my, eye was like, why is it white? Like, I mean, I guess, yeah, the acid could have bleached it. I don't know. It just, it, he also like, the, he released gas and set it on fire from the inside. So like between the acid and the heat, I, yeah, I don't know. It just, it just, for, I, yeah, I don't know why I couldn't get past it. It was just like, why? back everybody to another episode of the motor mouth podcast the podcast where a lot of great ideas go absolutely nowhere my name is joel tyree and with me as always my esteemed co-host the ghost of tim gerard hello <laughs> from the beyond <laughs> and that's it we do two seconds on the joke and we move on <laughs> i'm legally bound to say that or tim will quit the podcast <laughs> i have only consented to two seconds of podcast for this bit <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is like an NDA situation. There's no NDA about the NDA, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> Infinite <laughs> regression. <laughs> John Cleese, that's his favorite thing about the, uh, um, oh, for Life of Brian. Mm-hmm. I guess they, there was a studio who was on the hook for like producing the Life of Brian script. And they put the cart before the horse and they agreed to all this stuff before like a big exec had read it and he read it and he was like, Oh my God, this is blasphemous. I can't do this. It'll ruin me. So they pulled out and they ended up like, like Monty Python sued and won because they had like an inter interdepartmental memo that said, we are lucky enough to have the Monty Python picture. And they're like, well, they, they weren't supposed to talk about it, but they didn't <laughs> do an NDA about the NDA. <laughs> and John Cleese, who was, like studying to be a barrister, like was in law school. Like he got to use his legal training one time and it was nice. to say, we could say whatever we want. Cause you weren't smart enough to do an NDA about the NDA. <laughs> and that's a great idea that went absolutely nowhere. <laughs> I, I, have a similar, I have a similar experience. That's opposite of that. Yeah. When I first moved out here and I was like uh, with the property management, like looking over my lease, you know, the guy knew I was going to DU 
Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming he like assumed I was going there for law school because he was like, you know, he handed me the, the lease and he's like, you know, it's, it's pretty standard. I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll recognize this. And I was like, Oh, he thinks so. And I was, just, I was just like, but I'm not going to tell him I'm not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> like, no, yeah. Everything, everything looks pretty. Yeah. Like it's kind of played along like, yep, I'm, I'm going to law school. So you better not fuck me over. <laughs> so, so that was the opposite. Cause I wasn't, you know, going to be a barrister, or whatever. <laughs> what if the landlords in Colorado have a system like medical records, like they transfer it. So maybe that's why the whole heating and gas thing has been such an issue. Cause they think you're a lawyer and you haven't right. sued anybody yet. <laughs> yeah, it just no. follows you from tenement to tenant. <laughs> well, I, you know, I wish somehow it did follow through. Then it could be like, you know, Part of me wants to be like, I went to DU, you know, I have a degree from DU and hope that they assume like, oh, must be, must be a lawyer. <laughs> but then it's like, why are you living in this apartment? <laughs> you have a law degree. Mind your business. <laughs> Two topics enter. Sanity's left. It's gone. It's dead. <laughs> Tim, what'd you bring? So um, I wanted to bring something that's related to school, but not just me talking about school. So the, the, the topic we've been kind of talking about a lot, which I feel like is, is more relatable, is uh, melody in film scoring. Oh, okay. So I feel awesome. like, like I said, there's, there's actually possibly a discussion to be had, not just be like, not to me going, let me tell you everything I'm learning about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. And in keeping with this being a TV podcast, <laughs> despite <laughs> despite Tim's best efforts, <laughs> we're going to talk about the Hulu original series, Solar Opposites, because Tim's seen it, and I'm very excited to talk to somebody about it. <laughs> it's, it's fun. It's a fun show. It is a unique show. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. Once I saw it, I burned through it. I was like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, this will this will be done by next time. You're like, oh, I see what this is. I Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, when I saw it, I was like a little interesting. It's like, okay, it's a, a funny adult cartoon. Like I'm totally into those, but I didn't realize it was by like some of the makers of uh, Rick and Morty. So had I known that I would have launched into it earlier. I, it's Rick and Morty without the guilt. <laughs> it really, <laughs> I love it. There's yeah. so little baggage with it. It's outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> so melody in film score. Yeah. So, so I, I guess just to sort of give like the the overview of kind of like where I guess where it's starting from is like so so traditionally melody used to be a big part of film scores you know like and you know the, the golden age as they call it like that's you know that's what it was and um, I guess I'm giving a little bit of sort of the the music history from class where you know it kind of grew out of both the the romantic era of classical music but also like Broadway musicals and that type of thing. And that's sort of what went into sort of the first big film scores with this sort of full orchestral treatment and, mm-hmm. and, and melodies and themes and things like that, you know, melodies uh, representing characters or places or events or something, you know, that will come back every time that person comes back. Um, you know, however, nowadays there's, there is kind of like a split from that where there are a lot of directors who who don't want melody. They don't want themes, Um in their films, you know, um, some of the reasons are that, you know, 
well, you know, melodies are, are old fashioned, you know, this is going to make my movie sound like it's from, you know, like the fifties or thirties or whatever, you know, it's going to make it sound dated. It's going to make it, you know, I want it to sound new and fresh and this type of thing. Um, another, another reason for not wanting melodies is that, you know, melodies, um, and this, you know, my professor put it in a, a, a really good way is that, you know, melodies are foreground material. And if you're a director, you may not want something that's not part of your film that you've constructed moving into the foreground. You want the music to stay in the background behind everything. Um, and melodies will draw attention, you know, from the viewer. Um, so, so, so part of it, I guess, part of the discussion I wanted to have is just sort of like discussing sort of the range of maybe, you know, types of music, whether they have melody or not, like in films, um, you know, also sort of what, what scores you tend to prefer, you know, again, like I said, I, you know, I feel like this is something that could be more of a discussion, not just like yeah. doing a data dump, you know, <laughs> like, sure. you know, and, and I know that it's, it's a discussion we've had before and I've had with other people and, you know, other people who do have very like sort of strong opinions, you know, and one of the, the, you know, advantages of having a melody is it's something, if it can get stuck in your head and you kind of remember it, you can kind of hum the tune, leave, you know, leave the theater humming the tune. Um, you know, we can also get into sort of what, what composers focus more on melody and, you know, which ones don't, you know, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, just to kind of, yeah, I, yeah, I'm interested in not sort of dominating this half of the, of, of right. you know, my topic, because it's like, <laughs> well, this isn't just something that I, you know, have to talk about. Like, right. So the first, the first sound that came to mind was the Superman theme song. Uh, with oh wow! Chris Reeve. Star Wars, interesting. So, I, well, okay. If I'm honest, <laughs> it was the Force theme when Luke is watching this Twin Sons of Tatooine set and mm-hmm. longing for a life he doesn't have. Obviously, like that French horn line, that mournful farm boy dreaming of something better, something more exciting. That resonates with my tiny little nerd soul. I obviously, but like when like talking about signaling a character. I was thinking about Superman okay. and how hummable and in, instantly recognizable that theme is and the triumph of it, the joy of it, the strength of it. And the side, like the, how it starts, that, that like it, it's something's coming. And mm-hmm. it, it was kind of, it, it was a throwback to kind of like the radio serials of like, here comes Superman. Like it right. was, that was always a part of it was kind of this fanfare, literally. So that is just a a great crystallization of like spirit of a character, triumphant use. It's a throwback. I, I tend to like themes and and melody and stuff. I I do appreciate textures in scoring and and using it as another part of the palette. Like I I do like Hans Zimmer, I think does that a lot. Mm -hmm. Obviously he has themes, but like, I feel like they're, they're not as easy to pick out or hum you 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 feel them rather than right. really hum them or have them stick with you in that way, and for some reason it also made me think we haven't really talked about like sound tracking, so the like score, but also directors using pre-existing music like pop music and that stuff. That aspect of it is something you and I haven't really ever discussed, which is kind of interesting because that also, I mean. I'm thinking Batman forever and kissed by a, from a rose like, <laughs> that integrate. Like that was such a big part of that film because like seal dropped the video in like in preparation for it. Like there was the, like, it was a multimedia marketing thing. Mm. You get these. And then I don't know, like that's 1998. So 
back in the day, but like the idea of like cross promoting and using an artist as part of the marketing and also fitting like a tone and aesthetic for a film. Tarantino is great at that, like picking Mm. songs that really, even, even if they clash with the time and the aesthetic, it's capturing a feeling about it, you know, like, um, there's a lot (laughs) (laughs) like Superman. I, I think that's, that's a really that. And I mean, uh, animated series batman those scores hmm. are i mean are they those are both john williams no no no. danny elfman did dark right. knight that one or the uh animated batman well the animated see it's weird because i think the animated batman series uses i think danny elfman's theme maybe for the opening credits but i think uh what's her name uh shirley something with a w shirley walker i think did hmm. the score so i think okay I think she possibly even maybe like reworked Danny Elfman's theme gotcha. and then did the, the scoring throughout the episodes. I think, I think that's how it worked. Cause yeah, I remember hearing it and being like, Oh yeah, that's the Batman theme that I know. But it was like, Oh, composer Shirley Walker. Like, wait, right. what? Like, I thought Cause that- Elfman did it for 89 Batman with, um, and, yeah. Burton and Batman and, returns and returns. Okay. And then I, I guess the animated series was like 92 through 94, five ish in there. Mm-hmm. This isn't fat man on Batman. I don't know it. That's <laughs> Kevin Smith's podcast. Not ours. <laughs> um, yeah. That those, I mean, growing up, that was like a really strike and it, that's, it's an orchestral theme. Like that was, it made a big impact on me because you would watch cartoons and like, Thundercats and shit like Defenders of the Earth had like these huge rockin' eighties like theme songs and stuff. Yeah. But well, yeah, like, and they that, all had words. Yeah, they're all like right. singers, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And they they would tell you the origin of the character for three minutes before right. <laughs> they, they burned three of the twenty two minutes they had right before. Is <laughs> a bygone like, era. Oh, I know the origin. <laughs> I watch this all the time. <laughs> But that one, like that one really struck, I mean, everything about animated Batman stuck out because it was just so like, like interesting and dark and like it treated the audience like adults, even though we were kids and some of that mm-hmm. stuff we probably shouldn't have watched because it's disturbing, but like, it was so cool. It was just like, that was a really early, I mean, Star Wars was always there, but like early setting a mood with an orchestral theme was a big deal in that. Um, it's interesting that they the ones that are coming to mind are like super, I mean, even like I think a lot about John Williams cause I, I love all the movies he got to score like Indiana Jones, iconic theme that like he has a, he has a traveling theme. He has like a heroic theme. He has all like, it, like that, that's, I'm trying to think of m- more modern ones. I mean, I fucking love the score for tenant. Was that Hans Zimmer too? Uh, was for some reason, I thought it wasn't. Christopher Nolan's Tenant, um, for the listeners. <laughs> Not just saying random words. Because <laughs> I, I know he had been doing a lot with Hans Zimmer. It was the same composer from Mandalorian. Who did oh, work. yeah. Oh, uh, shit, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Because I remember, I remember assuming it was going to be Hans Zimmer, and then I saw that it was, yeah, it was him. I was like, oh, okay. Now we got to give your wife credit on the podcast. She's a fact right. checker. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody in it. <laughs> We're not making any. Yet. <laughs> well, I guess that's better than one of us being like, "Hold on, let me look on." Right. No, it is good. <laughs> that's that'll be our Patreon thing. Like, we'll have the fact checking on right. the Patreon version. <laughs> right. This podcast will have more fact checking. Or I was, I was going to say, 
more fact checking by the sources than the years 2016 to 2020. <laughs> All that fact checking was after the fact by other people <sighs> being like, wait a minute. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, of like more modern scores. I, I think I I did like Tenet. And I, I mean, Mandalorian is a great, great yeah. score. I really like the moves of that kind of sets. And I mean, there, there's an episode of the Boba Fett where as, as the episode ends, we hear the Mando theme and we know that next time on, it's going to be right. Mando's back. So it's yeah. just that that's a good, there, there are two types of scores in terms of like listenership. I think it's like, Ones that are so good because you don't notice them and they're in the background mm-hmm. and they, they are just, you're, you're passively uh, experiencing them and they're building the scenes and you think about, Oh, I guess that did contribute too. Or there are those ones that stand out and kind of grab you. And I like, I, I, I like a mixture of both of them. And like Manda is a great example of just one that's just yeah. so so interesting, so kind of different. You can kind of hear all of these different influences going on. It's the instrumentation's interesting and different. Like it, it I, I, it's a great example of modern scoring. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny too, like you saying, I'm trying to think like, that's exactly what happens to me in my classes because they'll go on through the whole lesson and they're like, here's a great example of what I'm talking about. Indiana Jones. Here's another great example, Star Wars. And then it's like, what's another melody. That's an example of this. Like, I don't know. You use them all. Like, they're not <laughs> like <laughs> so it's like having to scour in his course. Like and actually to be fair, I do this not just in the podcast, but also in class where like, what's an example from one of your favorite scores? Like the matrix, blah, 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 blah. Like that's always my go-to thing. When they're like, but I couldn't do that with melody. There isn't a lot right. of melody in the matrix score. So right. like, I was like, so stuck. Like every time they're like, think of a melody from a score you like that does this. It's like, I don't know. Like all the ones I know. Yeah. All the ones I know you already mentioned, like star Wars does it. And Indiana Jones does this. Sure. But like, what else, you know? And it's like, so it's been kind of interesting and, and, you know, like, I think that that's part of one of the, the whole sign of the times is that I think melody is less of a part now than it was. Um, but like, I, I agree. It, it depends. And there, I like the mix. Um, and that's one of the things that's funny too. And it's, it's that same class where we've talked about what makes good music. And I feel like there, there are a lot of times where it seems like some of the students want sort of a, a tangible, finite, definitive answer like whether should film scores have melodies or not. It's like, the answer is it fucking depends, you know, it's and, taste, it, you know, it's taste yeah. And, and, and well, yeah. And above all, like it's what the director wants, you know, and I love how my teacher has been putting it. He's like, I don't want you to get fired from a score because the director says, don't put any melodies and you put right. melodies in and he fires you or she fires you, you know? So like, that's the, the, I think what's funny too is like, I feel like there's, there's a ton of, criticism at the composers sometimes for the type of music they're writing, whether or not they're doing melodies, but it's like, it's not up to them. It's up to the directors, you know? Um, so I think that's one thing. And I, yeah, I also think like, yeah, it, it does depend on the film. Cause like we were, we were studying some of the stuff uh, like um, that uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross does like the social network. Mm-hmm. And it's like, could you picture the social networks being network being scored by John Williams with like melodies all over the place? Like, I don't know that that works, you know, like that's like, and you know, um, so I think, you know, I think that's part of it too, is like, uh, you know, not, not to try to like, I guess 
like, okay, we talked a little bit now I'm going to steer like, here's the answer. But I think, I think that has to be part of the, the discussion is that like it, yeah, it has to fit the film. It has to fit what the director wants for the film. Um, and I, yeah, I know that a lot of the, yeah, like a lot of times there is criticism for, you know, the film scores of today or another thing I want to get into, which is a little bit of an ulterior motive. I'll get to that in a minute, you know, uh, if you have say a series of films where they're kind of criticized for their music, it's like, well, you know, I think, and again, I'll get into that as a, a separate thing. It's like, well, is it like, what like, could it be blame for that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think it's probably the opposite of what you think. Um, yeah. Like that, that I think there are a lot of factors that go into it. And I think for me, one of my criteria for good music is the idea of variety, you know? And I yeah. think that, you know, whether we're talking about one film, the score to one film, or the types of film scores I like. Some of the film scores I like have lots of melody. Some of them don't have any melody, you know, and I think that that has to do with that, too. Another thing I realized, too, that, you know, it, it didn't really hit me, but, like, there are plenty of times where John Williams is just doing underscoring. Like, he's not always doing melody all the time. Right. And, like, I remember, you know, and one of the things I thought of was, like, you know, this is something I do sometimes. You ever have like pretend um, arguments with someone? Yeah. Yep. So why are you doing it like that? <laughs> yeah. So basically, someone being like, "Oh, well, John Williams is such a great composer," and the, the melody. It's like you know, sure, but like, like he's not like melody twenty four seven. You know, and it's like, and the 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 thing that finally like clicked with me um, in one of my classes when we were gonna we had the choice of like uh, analyzing Empire Strikes Back, and like he showed us a clip from Empire Strikes Back. And there, there's just like all this random stuff happening. And it's just like, like there, there's no melody here. There's no focal point and, it, and it's perfect for the scene. Like, can you hum the tune that's going on when, you know, Luke and Han are, are on Hoth and they're just kind of like walking around and, and Han's like, Oh, I'm trying to leave, you know, but Chewie's taking the Falcon apart and Luke's it. Can you hum the melody that's going on? You know, Cause there is none. I mean, there are moments where there are echoes. It's, I feel like it's cacophonous for some reason. It sounds, yeah. in my head, it's like a bunch of stuff going on, but nothing important just because right. there's weird. Yeah. And, and, weird. There, and there are little, little elements, I think, like as you're going, like, oh, that, that was like a little clip of this theme, you know, but like, but that's part of it too. Like there's, there's other stuff going on. So it's not just like there's like eight bar melody after eight bar melody and it's just like melody after melody. Like the melody comes in in these big sort of important moments, but, but there is plenty of underscore in star Wars too, you know, I mean, granted his underscore tends to be a lot busier than, than some other composers, you know, and like a lot of what they said too, is like, well, he's John Williams. He can get away with that. You know, like, mm. plus if you're hiring John Williams, like you should know that, that that's what you're getting. Like if you want a drone as your underscore, don't hire John Williams, right. Hire, you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, you know, like that's, that's, you know, but if you want, orchestral activity that's super busy and energetic, but you're not going to pay attention to, which to me, I would be kind of pissed if I went through that trouble of here's a page of orchestration for like five minutes long and no one's going to notice or remember this because it's underneath all this stuff, but make it super busy and interesting anyway. It's like, shit, no, like I'm going to put a drone in here, you know? And, you know, um, so, so yeah, so it is just kind of interesting that like, I feel like what, you know, John Williams is known for his melodies and these themes, but it's like, yeah, when you think about, okay, yeah, the, the Star Wars themes, for example, or, or, or you know, do, do yours of like Superman, right? Like, oh, there's the Superman theme and there's the love theme and there's Planet Krypton. Like, I feel like those right. are probably the three core ones. Yeah. But like, 
does he just loop those three themes and alternate them throughout the whole film? Like, no, there's other stuff going on that, that you don't remember as well because it's right. not those themes. It's, it's the in-between stuff. And, um, and I just think it's interesting that I feel like, you know, people, and that's part of it. You remember the themes, but you don't remember when there aren't the themes and that, that, that there's also underscore and that there's also stuff that's just kind of murmuring in the background and mm-hmm. not as important as when the melodies finally do pop up. And, um, Oh, that was another thing I, I like, I, you thought, I thought you brought up a really good point when you talk about the beginning of the Superman theme, how it's building to something, Yeah, but it's like, yeah, if you had that build and there was no melody to announce the arrival of what that right. was to like how awkward that would be. So it's right. like, there is, yeah, there is much of a, a, a sense of shape that melody gives you, you know, that it's, it's an arrival point. Whereas if you have no melody, like, yeah, you're just kind of like this, this murmuring drone in the background, which again, if that's what the film needs, that's what the film needs. But um, I don't know if this is an argument for melody, but I was thinking about the psycho soundtrack. Mm. I couldn't hum a bar of it, but we all know, read, read, read. Right. <laughs> and that almost becomes, I mean, it's the diegetic, non-diegetic discussion, but it's also where score stands in for sound editing for, for Foley mm. in, in that mm. sense, the whole, like at the end of a, a, a whip crack thing, like oh, yeah. when you get that for sleigh ride stuff, the best part of any like <laughs> Christmas theme is the, the jingle bells and the whip crack thing. That's the funniest, greatest part of it. Um, so I was thinking about that as like, that's an iconic horror melody. And I, I remember kind of like, there's a, a, a slow kind of maybe cellarondo, like crescendoing up into this, uh, the, the impacts of the knife into the victim. And it, it, it's, it's effective for that. And it, that's not a hero's theme. It's not, it's not even, I wouldn't call it a melody, but it is, one of the greatest fusions of score and action in film history. I mean, one of the most iconic scenes of it, sequences of anything like, so that, that was, I was thinking about that. And then also, um, Oh, that was another score I had in mind. Shit. I can't remember. Um, Oh, um, oceans 11. Soderbergh puts just these super jet setty cool. I don't even know if that's the right word. I've been just using jet set a lot, but like <laughs> this very kind of cool. I don't know. I it's, it's jazzy. It's funky. There's there's definitely you know, almost. I I think of it almost like retro futurism of jazz. Like this idea of like okay, the the Ocean's Eleven with Clooney and Pitt is like the 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 new Rat Pack, right? right. So it's like so they were a part of this kind of music movement. If we're kind of throwing back, but also forward, this is the kind of music that would set in those. Right. Yeah. And I think that same, I can't remember who the, the composer for those. Cause I, I think he did all three oceans films and eight. And I think, or it gets four and then uh, Logan lucky, I think. And Logan lucky is a very different score, very much more inspired by like Southern and Western uh, music but no less effective for that, just doing that within that area. And it's cool how they it like establishes this place. Actually, it's a great transition into uh, Oceans 12 because Oceans 12 is very much more the European infused jazz oh, yeah. kind of music movement. And as convoluted as that film is and as frustrating as that film can be, it's <laughs> great for the sense of place that it establishes with score. And I was just thinking like, 
when I'm thinking non-John Williams, I'm thinking about, I mean, that's probably the only soundtrack or score that I listen to is uh, Oceans, just because it, it has like a stimulating kind of like productive groove to it. I, I don't, I'm not putting on the Star Wars score often or any, like really, I, that's not part of my consuming of music. But when I was just thinking like, non-superhero, non-John uh, Williams themes made me really think about Oceans yeah. and Psycho. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, so with Oceans, that's a perfect example of like, yeah, like like melody isn't a bad thing, but it's also not necessary in order right. for the score to be effective or for the music to be good even. Yeah, it's like if, if you're, you're going to listen to it without the film, like there's got to be something good about it, you know, whether it has melody or not. Um, Oh, and I also thought of a, a, a sort of fun fact when you, when you mentioned Psycho. Yeah. So, like, we, we had studied that film in one of my classes, and, and it was weird because they didn't talk about this specifically, but it was something that I kind of picked up on. But, like, they, they mentioned that, like, the... So um, there's a, there's a, a thing, uh, an effect you'll see in, in string writing where it'll say consordino, which means with mute. And what okay. it is is there's, like, a, a, a rubber... I think it's usually rubber. It's a rubber block that they will put on the bridge of okay. the, the string instruments. Yeah. What it does is it, it, it limits the vibration mm. and it, it mutes it. it. It muffles the sound a little bit. So, um, and a lot of times that will be used at a special part. Like if you want, you know, something and it doesn't necessarily, I mean, the strings can still play quietly. They don't need that, but like, it will give a, a sort of like this thinner sound, this kind of more background type sound that sometimes uses as, as an effect. Or yeah, if you really want them to, you know, if you're like, we have this little flute solo and we want to make sure the string whole string section is under that. Like, okay, let's do consordino. So most of the, the psycho film score from the, the music we saw at the beginning of every cue, it was a consordino on, on all the strings top to oh, bottom, wow. even though there'll, there'll be moments where it's like fortissimo, you know, so like they're playing loud, they're playing. So like, you know, it's, it's not something that's done as an isolated effect. It's done throughout the, almost the whole score except for the shower scene they are instructed to take the music off for that scene so you're used to this this sort of muffled kind of like slightly in the background like i said it doesn't just make it quiet like i think yeah like like it's you know muted it's you know it's probably like you know the closest thing would be some sort of filter you might put on mm-hmm. sound where it's not just like softer like you're turning the volume down and it's and you know and like i said they still have to play loud they're still fighting to play loud and get this sound out and then all of a sudden at that scene, it's like full volume, but also like full brightness, you know, like, yeah. and, you know, and, and the, you know, the strings are playing on where they're playing. It's just like everything comes together at that point to have this, this huge contrast, everything you've been hearing before. And I feel like it, it like adds to the scariness of that, that you're like, I've subliminally become used to the sound that I can expect from the strings and all of a sudden it's like every possible way, like not just, yeah. It, I mean, it is the register obviously that they're playing in, but also that the timbre has changed and, you know, you're getting the full volume, full brightness. Um, so that was something I thought was like really cool. And they didn't say that specifically. Like he, he mentioned that I think in the beginning, like, Oh yeah. You, you know, Consordino is used this, this and that, but like, didn't mention that like, Oh yeah, it, they come off for this scene. Like, so, so that was something I noticed that's that I thought awesome. was like really cool and really effective. It's like, damn, I wish I had thought of that. That's such a cool thing. And that's the thing like that, that mirrors the, the mystery of 
that movie because you're like, what? This is such a strange setup. And then there is a killer and that reveal that like, it's a huge build of tension and this anxious kind of energy. And then that release is just like, I love that. That's so cool. I love that. That, that makes psycho even cooler. How is that possible? (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, it's almost cliche to talk about. We talk about it so much is the planet of the apes Mm. score. Like, very off to one side, very non-traditional, very asymmetric in terms of beats used and, and hitting you in different time signatures and just unsettling, spooky, uh, great score. Not Again, not a casual listen for me for that one. Just, it's too scary. <laughs> it's, it's not comfortable <laughs> to listen to. Um, So I, I also want to come back to, you mentioned Hans Zimmer before. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I read about Hans Zimmer, where he had said, like, he, he wants you to be able to know, sort of to be able to establish, like, I guess, like either the mood or what the character is like within two notes. And, and it's definitely one of the things that I've, I've noticed, yeah, that he does a lot where, he, like you said, like he does a lot of texture stuff, but even within his themes that are actually melodic, there is also a texture that's, that seems to be married to his themes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, like, yeah, the, the Batman theme from the Dark Knight trilogy, like it is only two notes, but you know it not because of those two notes, but because of everything else that's going on around it. Right. You know, that 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 is such a part of it, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, like with a lot of John Williams stuff, you know, if you hear the, the, the first four notes of the Indiana Jones theme played on clarinet, you're still going to recognize, oh, that's Indiana Jones or, right. or whatever, you know, um, whereas with with Hans Zimmer, he definitely creates this whole sound world as part of his theme, which I, I, I'm, I go back and forth on that because I do feel like the idea of it is really cool. But then one of the things I notice in his scores is a lot of times when those themes come back, they are, they do tend to be exactly the same every time. Uh, Probably the biggest example of that I've seen is the Superman theme from uh, Man of Steel. Mm where when that's first established, I think, you know, he's like, it's, I think we first hear when he's on the oil rig and yeah. he, I think it's even after the explosion when he's underwater and he creates this like super reverby piano kind of theme. And like the whole thing sounds very much underwater, this kind of just like floating and listless, which, you know, is, it works well for the character. And then one of the things I noticed too, cause I was like, I played around with it and it's, I think it's all the same pitches as the John Williams Superman theme. And it's almost oh. as if he, 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 it's almost as if he consciously said, I want this to be like a prelude to John Williams Superman theme. Oh, like, that's cool. like I'm going to play around with these notes. Like I'm trying to get to that point, but he's, he's not there yet. That's and just cool. the way it kind of how it slowly builds up the scale and like the climactic note is like the same climactic note from like the John Williams one, but it's definitely, it meanders a lot more. Um, but I feel like every time you hear it, it's that same texture of like the, the reverb piano, the sense of like floating on the water, which mm-hmm. were, you know, those were the visuals, like one of the first times you hear it. But I think even when it comes back in um, Batman versus Superman, it's like, it seems to be almost the exact same orchestration, like almost as if they just took that same recording and dropped it in. I mean, they probably did re-record it right. and maybe, you know, stretched it out to fit the scene exactly. 
but there isn't like a, a sort of textural or orchestrational like development of the theme, which I feel like, I mean, to be fair, I think that's one of the points of the Snyder verse Superman is he hasn't quite gotten his shit together yet. Right. Um, but like, but that's definitely part of it where, you know, whenever we see him and we hear that theme, it's that sense of like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, you know? And we don't, I feel like, and, and you know, I could be wrong. I haven't studied them extensively, but again, what has jumped out to me is like, Oh, this isn't just the Superman theme in, ter- in terms of a melody, which has been treated differently orchestration wise. Like this is the exact same thing I heard back in man of steel, you know, um, as opposed to like, you know, one of the, the for me, the opposite end of the, of the spectrum is uh, Michael Giacchino who like, you know, if you like the, the if you look at the, the incredible score, you know, where it's got like these two little licks and he does everything with them, mm-hmm. like everything possible with those two little licks. And it's just like, like, Oh damn, like that, you know? So, and, and, and I guess like, you know, for the sake of being fair, I don't want to say that one is better than the other, but I've just, that's what I've sort of noticed is that, you know, and, and maybe a lot of it has to do with the, the, the moviegoers, like, what are they going to recognize? And I feel like mm. maybe, maybe your average listener isn't going to recognize a melody after it's been through different permutations, which mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's, that's true. Cause like I said, I feel like most people would recognize the Indiana Jones theme if it was played on an instrument other than trumpet, right? you know, um, or if you heard the force theme not played on a horn, you know, like right. I think you would still be like, Oh yeah, that's the force theme, but you put it in a different instrument. So it sounds different. It's weird. It, you know, it's something's not quite right, you know, as opposed to, you know, the Superman theme needs the reverby piano and the sort of floaty, you know, string pads in the background and everything, you know, to create the Superman theme. Um, and I mean, to be fair, it does build into sort of the flight theme that he has where that kind of rises and builds to that. But I, I, again, I feel like even that is the same, you know, mm-hmm. where he had, I think for the originally, he had like a room full of drum sets in a circle around and like recorded this full stereo, you know, or surround sound of all these different drum sets playing these rhythms. I think that same thing comes back in. So it's like, you know, there's definitely a, a, a very specific characteristic that he will build for a character, but like, I don't know how much he will deviate that from that and, and vary that. But again, it's super recognizable. Like, you know, you, you definitely, you know, you know, when the Batman theme is coming again, there is that buildup. And even though it's those, only those two notes, you're like, Oh, that's Batman, you know? Right. Um, but Zimmer, I always think of the, the cold open to dark night where, and when you said like, you know, within two minutes or mm-hmm. two notes, yeah. like it's all rhythm. The start of that is it's like a clock ticking down and you like, okay, there's tension. We're thinking about explosions. And then psh, you get that kind of a release within the, the the sound editing of that, that breaking out of the window and the, the cable being shot. Like, it's just a great synergy. It really establishes the energy of that. And it like, I more even than the Batman theme, I, I remember, I mean, I just love the cold open to dark night so much. I just yeah. like, it's so much a director who wants to be directing James Bond. Right. doing it for Batman and doing it so pristinely well. And I mean, James Bond's another one, like live and let die. And w- when, when they have the synergy of a, 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 a theme song artist who is integrated into the John Berryman, Berryman, I think that's the, the right composer, that score, that, that classic James Bond theme, 
when those things are, are firing on all, all cylinders, pun intended, because of the barrel <laughs> sequence. But Live and Let Die is a great example of that, like great synergy of the score giving a p- sense of place and also adapting. But in Cold Open, going into a title sequence with the fucking Live and Let Die, which is a, an outstanding song and great in that art orchestral version. Um, but that Nolan specifically with Zimmerman or Hans Zimmer in that opening sequence is just so, so much about the confidence of a director and, and a composing of a, a scene and, an, an uh, I don't know if I could hum any of the notes in the score from the beginning, but I know the music is contributing to this sense of, okay, there's a heist going on. Oh, we're dropping like flies. Oh, what a great characterization for the Joker. Oh, he's there. And then that big reveal when he takes it off, that big is great. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, should I guess at the film series that gets flagged for scoring? Um, oh, sure, oh, yeah. Real quick, I want to... Is Silvestri who did Back to the Future? Yeah. Because that's another example of, like, there's a heroic theme in there. But there, there's just little flourishes that he peppers in. Like, whenever he... When there's that reveal of um, where his parents' house is supposed to be, but mm-hmm. he's back in the day when they're they're going to be making yeah. it. There's that little flourish of that that really yeah. high plinky reference mm-hmm. to the theme, and yeah, I just, can't sing that, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> I I love textures like that, and I think that's a great synergy of that's that's melodic ish, but again, we can't hum it, right. and we can hum the fucking Back to the Future theme like that. That's a very iconic, very well established heroic theme. So to have that counterpoint of that, that's a great example of somebody who's doing both is those little flourishes. And it's, it's not like the, the John Williams thing of there's a cacophony of shit going on. None of it's really interesting. It's here's a little taste and it it just, it adds to it for its brevity too. Yeah. That was one of the things we talked about too, is like, you know, melodies having, a melodies that have sort of a, a motive that you can kind of instantly recognize, even if you don't get to hear the whole melody, you know, cause if, right. if you have like you know, eight bar melody, you're not going to get to use that all the time. But right. if you can hear, you know, like, again, like Indiana Jones, you know, if you hear the first four notes, you know, Oh, there's Indiana Jones, you know, yeah. if you hear the first three notes of back to the future, you're like, that's back to the future, yeah. you know, um, you know, that type of thing. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a, a, a thing that I've noticed with, scores that have melodies that i don't notice i think they're just kind of like you know the melodies just kind of meander they're like overly romantic where it's just like at any moment i'm going to do whatever i want and just kind of do whatever but like you know one of the things that we're studying and so i have two classes we're talking about melody at the same time but different aspects of it one of them is writing a successful melody meaning a melody that will be memorable after one hearing and another one is a melody that's an expression of, of, you know, your compositional voice, you know? Mm. So, so it's kind of interesting coming at it from both angles, but like, but yeah, the idea of, you know, you can, you can write this melody. That's like, Oh, this is the melody that my heart is singing for this scene. But if it's just like, there's no sort of plan to it and it's just kind of all over the place, like no one's going to remember that. And that's how I feel about a lot of melodies that I hear like, Mm. Oh, there's a melody happening right now. Um, but I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's starting and where it's ending and I'm not going to remember it. I don't remember 
the measure I just heard, let alone, you know, four measures back, you know? Right. Um, so that was an interesting way to kind of think about, you know, like, yeah, like Superman's a perfect example. I mean, you hear his fucking name in the first three notes, you know? So it's like, you know, like that type of thing. Like, again, you hear that, like, Oh, that's Superman. It even says Superman, you know? So it's like, okay, like we, we got it. We know who this is for, you know? Um, but, um, yeah. So I think that's an interesting, uh, for, for me, one of the, one of the things that I kind of picked up on, you know, is that, yeah, like I, I want to have something that's, that's recognizable. And, you know, the idea that a, vel- a melody might develop and, and kind of take you somewhere, but yeah, you also want that little thing that you could be like, if you hear this, if you have two seconds and you hear this thing, you know exactly what it is, you know, and what it's referring to. I'm now I'm thinking about, um, uh, Jerry Lewis films, um, great pantomimist. So he has mm-hmm. those. Do, there, there's a couple sequences in Bell Boy and Aaron Boy, where he's got Count Basie and his oik, or orchestra. What was that? <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> I don't know what the accent that is. She's lady. It's Jerry. He's just possessing me. God. Right. Uh, <laughs> fucking Jim Carrey in uh, Man on the Moon being an asshole, saying he's possessed by Andy Kaufman. the orchestra it's it's cow basie's orchestra and he has these great play he he plays with this pantomime of one of them he's typing on a typewriter and it it becomes part of the score and it it, it's blending the i guess i'm i'm liking the idea of blending the diegetic non-diegetic scoring i mean edgar wright in uh um uh I mean, all of his stuff has great, like, integral scoring and, like, dramatic mm-hmm. stuff. But Baby Driver, that score is so yeah. much about the, the interplay between diegetic and non-diegetic music. That is music that is above a scene and meant to be part of the frame or within the scene and the characters are reacting. I, I use diegetic, non-diegetic, but that explains it. Sorry, listeners, that's what that means. If you've <laughs> listened this far, <laughs> what the fuck is that? Um, but the the... I, I love the play of that with Jerry Lewis because he, the typewriter becomes an instrument and his performance of it, there's a precision to it. And when he misses a note, it's deliberate and he's referencing it as like, oh, I could do that better. And there, there's also the, the boardroom scene in, I think it's Aaron Boy, where he, he's uh, uh, kind of like a page and he's delivering things along the studio lot. And he comes to this boardroom and he like, he, nobody's there. So he lights himself a cigar and he plays out like he is the chairman of the board, which is, I mean, that's who Count Basie was. That was his album was chairman of the board. Oh, nice. so th- that play of like people would have known Count Basie and that, that persona and also like that kind of that context for an audience to see the interplay of like, Oh, Jerry is referencing that he's the chairman of the board. And there's this great play to that. That that's I I'm thinking about that because the, again there's there's obvious score and then there's more subtle integrated score. And when when score is really interesting, I mean I know you haven't seen you saw Birdman, right? No, not yet. Dude. I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's been streaming anywhere. Uh, you use my iTunes login. We you got to see that. Okay. Gee, maybe that needs to be my next pick fuck for the other podcast we do um like no birdman has a great score great integration of score and it's an iritu i think that's how you say his name 
um, who also did The Revenant and just like great sequencing, great kind of molding. I mean, he's capturing a very specific section of New York, this theater district and a very specific type of show that's going on there and, and the people surrounding it. And there's this rhythm to it and this perpetual like playing with diegetic and non-diegetic. That's, that's a, I can't remember who the composer for that is either. Um, Isn't it mostly just a jazz drum set or all jazz drum set? It, it's mostly, there, there's other things that end up, th- okay. there's, there's kind of a heroic kind of surreal theme that goes through some of it too. Mm-hmm. Mostly with like, yeah, yeah I remember reading about that and being like, "Oh, damn!" It's just be like, "All right, I'm gonna." I think it's mostly like improvised too, just kind of like, mm-hmm. "Hey, here's what's happening. I'm gonna play to kind of mimic this." Yeah, it's great in in sequence with all these long tracking shots. Most of it feels like it's one take. Obviously, there's certain seams you can tell, mm-hmm. um, but it, yeah, that that's another example of one that's just incredible. Um, so is is it Marvel films that get a bad yeah. rap for yeah. scoring? Did you think I was going to say you were going to assume DC? Yeah, because well, you know how I feel about the Wonder Woman theme. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I know how you feel about the Wonder Woman. Right. The rest of us are perfectly fine with it. Right, yeah. <laughs> As is usually the case with all my opinions on things. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I know there's an Avengers theme. I hear it every time the the scroll happens in the beginning, the the... That logo is way too long. We gotta, we gotta cut that shit. <laughs> with they, part, the, the flipping, the Marvel, like, oh yeah, where they're panning off all of these dudes and mm-hmm. like, or ever all. Of oh, yeah, it just gets longer and longer as there are more characters right. and movies to add into it. Yeah. For Moon Knight, I just want it to be Marvel. Done. <laughs> yeah. It's like a flash. Like he imagined just, it. That's how quick. Yeah, just white. <laughs> i want it to start red and then turn white i want it to just be white <laughs> and not gray not like boba fett <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> so i feel like that was did you hear about the whole thing with like han solo's coat in empire strikes back when he's on hoth like what about apparently it a bunch of people thought it was blue but it was actually brown and like the toy that i have of han solo on hoth the, the coat is blue right yeah yeah and like the, I remember, like watching one of the behind the scenes thing, and it's like the woman who's in the costume department, like the coat is right here, it is brown, and like so I don't yeah. know if it's the whole like the dresses thing again, where like people were seeing it as different colors, but right. but it went so far as that whoever made the toys were like, yep, Han Solo's hoth coat needs to be blue, right? It's blue. Well, it's also <laughs> lighting. I mean, for yeah. the the thing, I mean, hoth is such a, a unique and it's one of the coolest like space battle sequences, like. It's great because nobody had ever done. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, they had never done um, coolest. Ha. <laughs> Fuck. It took me a minute. I was like, wait, what was the fun? But like for them to have white background and to do color separation, I like. I feel like he was playing with a lot of unique lighting. But yeah, I could totally see that confusion of of that color for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other. I mean, horror themes. Thinking about Halloween, I. I People like I, my friend Alice and I disagree about this. I really like that kind of synth theme that Carpenter wrote. That do 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 do. Yeah. She thinks it's kind of overused, and by the time you get to the climax, it's kind of overplayed. I I think it builds that tension. I think there's a nostalgia to it that, like, coming from watching it in 2021, that 80s synth is so naturally like a part of the set dressing that it doesn't. 
it, it, it's not distracting. I, it doesn't pull me out of it. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like, I'm not remembering any specific notes of it, but the, they live that movie, another J- James Carpenter. I really like the score in that one. That's the one with the great, uh, like, I think it's a 20 minute fight sequence with Roddy Rowdy Piper, who's a <laughs> WWF wrestler. And it's a great sequence. I can't remember who his, his uh, dance partner, I call it dance partner, his fight partner in that scene. Um, he's been in a bunch of, I think he was in the, uh, um, the remake of uh, Night of the Living Dead that uh, Tom Savini directed, which is outstanding. Also great score. Um, yeah, I guess uh george romero did some he composed some stuff for his his horror movies too i think some of the dead themes are his as well oh nice that's also cool i think Robert Rodriguez themes. also did that too i think he oh, did a bunch of music yeah that's cool yeah i mean obviously rob zombie i don't know i can't speak for the quality of the films that he's the what i've seen is just halloween one and two and i was like my 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 takeaway was rob zombie really likes halloween and this is not for me (laughs) it's brutal it's like there's certain things about them that are really good and like really kind of pay homage to the originals but like they're they're really kind of it's heartless i don't know if that's the right word for it like halloween is a weird film to think about a heart having a heart of but like well i mean i I think there is some heart at the core of it because there's like you know jamie lee curtis's character and it's like it's her brother and it's like so there's there's an emotional um, emotional connection there it's not just some like random dude killing people you know and i think i think that that is part of it you know and that's part of maybe what sustained it throughout all the many other chapters because you know i feel like she does pop up every now and then you know and Mm -hmm. um but yeah also, I, I feel, and I don't, I don't, I haven't seen them, so I don't know, but I do feel like with a lot of modern horror, they don't play around with it as much suspense as right. like the, the more traditional horror did. It's more just about the payoff. Like we're just going to dump a bucket of blood and guts on the screen and you're going to love it as opposed to like the sneaking around and like, is there someone lurking around the corner? I don't know. I, you know, like playing with that, you know, it's more just like, Oh, you think you're going to die? You are. And it's horribly. And you know, it's going to be the most disgusting thing you've ever seen, you know, like, yeah, like, so yeah, I think, I think that, yeah, like that to me, I think that, I don't know if that's exactly what you meant, but I kind of get it that, yeah, it's like, there's more, I feel like there's more, a little more of a psychological aspect to the older horror stuff too, you know, like where you, you could actually think about it and be like, yeah, like, why is this so terrifying? And you can discover these other layers as opposed to just like, you know, we're going to show you as much as possible and, you know, and, and yeah, it's disturbing and terrifying, but like, you're not, you're not thinking about it for the same reason. It's not, it's not, yeah. Not only does it not have heart, it also doesn't have brains. I feel like right. it's more just like, I mean, I, with like malignant and the, the, um, uh, I'm looking at my shelf with all of them now. Insidious. Uh, is that, I feel like part yeah, of that. Family? Insidious and the, the, um, uh, devil made me do it the uh annabelle there's another one i'm not remembering but um those feel like i feel like that direct i can't remember i should know this name he's a fucking genius like anyway um just malignant and those those films do a good job of like building that suspense and i, I think he's definitely inspired by tropes of the 80s i mean anybody who's seen a city could see all of the tropes there like it, it's it's he's not hiding um i'm looking up his name because it's just 
awful that I don't remember his name. James Wan, duh, of course. Aquaman, <laughs> same director. Oh, okay. Um, um, Insidious and Conjuring, that's the other one. Duh. Oh, okay. Um, just like the, those are really, I think you can't have an appreciation for 80s horror and be a director and not have good scoring and not want a specific kind of evocative, like, uh, anxious score. I, I, that's another one I was thinking of was uh, Silence of the Lambs. Incredible mm-hmm. score. I, I again couldn't hum a note of it, but watching it, it's definitely like you're, you're in that place. I mean, I remember the sequence where um, it, it's it's Quantico, Virginia, and uh, Starling is jogging. She's doing like the 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 course, right? And it's mm-hmm. foggy, and it's like it's looming and she's like kind of innocent. She's kind of descending into hell. Like she's slowly going down this mountain to where Jack Crawford is going to invite her into the dragon or the, the troll's lair or whatever, like into the dungeon with Hannibal Lecter. Like it, it, it's just, and the, the mist of that scene, the cold of that scene and the score kind of this haunting, I can't remember if it's like piano heavy or it seems like light strings, very like, like uh, a tenor, not that's not, like light, bright sounding but also kind of like this impending doom to it i can remember a lot of the textures a lot of feelings in that score but i can't remember specific notes yeah see so like that i mean not not to end that conversation but that's a perfect example of what i'm saying like i feel like the music can be effective and good and even memorable even if you can't necessarily whistle what the theme was right yeah and that's i mean that's a great counterpoint to superman right because everything about that that theme is here comes Superman, literally, right? Like you said, Superman, da, 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 da. like that, that's, it's, and that's the, the rumbling even is like, but, but about that, that kind mm-hmm. of fanfare starting is almost, it's almost telling you the story of Superman through the thing is like, here's these rumblings, here's these rumbling, he shoots away from a destroyed Krypton and comes to be this, this triumphant hero. And I mean, even in the sequence, like when he's traveling to earth, we get those great title sequence where the, Superman comes in and it, it it elongates and kind of zooms out to space and all the credits come through that way. Just it it it's telling it, it reminds me of an overture in a way, right? Like mm-hmm. that old that old trope. That's not really a thing anymore. We don't get that as much if you're not going to a, like a show, like a, right. a musical, right? So that like what is that um from the office. Daryl says, yeah, you yes, get a yeah. overture so that you know, recognize the themes when they come back later. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Oh, you, you took it right out of my head. That's awesome. <laughs> you had the same thought. I'm glad I beat you to the office reference. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That was really cool. It's just, that's a fucking incredible episode. Anytime <laughs> they go off site, anytime they're not at the office, oh yeah, fun shit happens. And especially in that episode, because Michael's so bitter and yeah. so awful. Like, it's just not... Michael is not a good person in that episode. Yeah. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's a great con like between Superman and Silence of the Lambs, it's like we can hum Superman. It's telling a story. It's very melody heavy. You can tell within a few notes what it's about. And then with Silence of the Lambs, you just remember that cold, misty feeling and you know that there was music, but it, you can't remember what it is. Like, yeah. yeah it's cool that that's uh i'm benefiting so much from you taking these classes <laughs> <laughs> well okay so so the discussion and and not that i always have to compare dc to marvel but to be fair 
I will say that is one of the things that I think DC kind of got right is there, there is a little more, at least with the sort of central stuff, there is that more cohesion where I think it's like, you know, the Zack Snyder directed Hans Zimmer did the music. So of course you're going to get themes that kind of carry over and everything. Um, but one of the things I've, I've thought about, and this, this came up in my class today where he was like talking about like, yeah, the Marvel movies don't have melodies or if they do, I don't remember any of them. And I think from what I've seen, cause I, I own a lot of them is they, they have a ton of different composers doing the different films. And I, and this is the thing too, I don't know enough about it where is it, cause I know like, say for example, uh, uh, Harry Potter, right. Yeah. Uh, John Williams did like the first few of those, but then yep. other composers have done them, but they still will use like Hedwig's theme and whatever, right. you know? And I feel like I've seen that happen in, in, in some other things where it's like, yeah, like, and, and the way I always thought of it is like, okay, the, the studio owns the rights to the music. So mm-hmm. if they want to give permission to a new composer coming in to use all those themes, I think they're allowed to, I mean, mm-hmm. I assume that's kind of how it works. Right. Um, I mean, with Star Wars, it hasn't really been much of an issue because I think, like, I don't know how much of John Williams' music there is in Rogue One. I'm, I'm assuming there's some, you know. It's very so, little. Yeah, so, I mean, there is, you know, the the possibility of using that because it's, but but most, yeah, most of the time it's just been John Williams the whole time doing his own music. Right. Um, and then I, I, like, I think one of my teachers had said at one point is that, like, yeah, like, you know, er, you know, usually when a new composer comes on as part of a series, like, they want to do their own themes, which, which to me is, is kind of shitty. Like, again, I can, I can understand that you as an artist and your own ego, you're like, I want to write a theme for this character, but it's like, but that's, that's not your job. You know, your job, if you're coming onto this series of films where we've been telling stories about these characters and, you know, the director is trying to, I mean, again, maybe it's the director's choice. Maybe they're like, I watched the first two films in this trilogy. I'm doing the third part. I don't want to reference any of that material. I want all new material. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I've kind of seen is like, I don't know that it's necessarily, and, and I feel like it's convenient to just lump all of Marvel into this and be like, yeah, Marvel doesn't have any memorable melodies. It's like, well, first of all, we're on what, 20 some odd films by now, like, you know, like if you, if you were to think of, if you were to take 20 John Williams films, can you remember all of the themes in all 20 of those films? Right. Probably not. You know, like, like some are, some are hit or miss, you know, like, do you remember the theme from catch me if you can, you know, I remember the title sequence, like the credits from catch. Me. Oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. yeah. With, and cool. I, it has, I, I kind of remember a little, but I couldn't hum it, but like, right. yeah, yeah. I, but I know what you're talking. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So again, it's there, but, 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 you know, not every John Williams film is an Indiana Jones or a star Wars or whatever, you know, like, you know, or like, like one of the, one of the jokes I like to make, I've I've made this a lot recently is like when, you know, I've had directors ask me to do stuff that's like Hans Zimmer. And it's like, next time someone says that, I'll be like, Oh, is you want driving Miss Daisy? Is that what you're looking for? (laughs) And uh, I know exactly what you want. (laughs) And the only reason I know that melody, Oh, here's a nice, nice, cool little um, uh, meta moment for you. The only reason I know the driving Miss Daisy melody is because in the movie, the holiday, uh, have you ever seen the holiday? Yeah. So Jack Black plays a film composer in that film. And he goes to like a video store with, uh, Kate Winslet's character and he's talking about film scores and he holds up driving Miss Daisy and he's like this has such a cool melody and he hums the melody which is a Hans Zimmer melody and Hans Zimmer is scoring the holiday 
Oh, wow. So, like, there's a reference to one of his own movies that gets sung by Jack Black <laughs> in another film that he's scoring. And I, I, I realized this later. I was like, I should go back and watch and see if he underscores Jack Black singing his melody oh, with the accompaniment yeah. from the. <laughs> um, so, anyway, so yeah, so it's just like, you know, I, I feel like with the amount of films there are, it's kind of it's hard to hold them all like they all have to have Star Wars level melodies. Number one. Number two. Yeah. Like when they're when it's being traded from composer to composer, there's yeah, there's a lot less of that carryover, whether it's the fault of, you know, the director's wanting or not wanting to reference the previous music an issue of copyright like maybe the composers held on to the copyright so you can't use any of their themes or maybe the new composer wants to do all their own themes um so i feel like it is a complicated issue not just like you know however having said that like i feel like alan silvestri created the avengers theme in the first avengers movie which he has sort of carried over so like there is a through line with at least those Avengers films. And I think he didn't score age of Ultron. I think that was like someone else and Danny Elfman, I think did some stuff on that Mm -hmm. one. Um, But yeah, it's like, if you get another composer coming in, either they don't want to use someone else's theme or, you know, like, can can you imagine that if they get a new composer for like the star, the, the star Wars sequels, like seven, eight, and nine, and they were like, I don't want to use the Star Wars themes that John Williams wrote for whatever reason. And like, we had three films that had no Star Wars music at all. Like, you know, so, and I don't know if part of that was also because, you know, at the beginning of the Marvel universe, it wasn't this established thing. Like it took a while to kind of get that foothold and get the right. momentum going to where Marvel had their own studio and there was more cohesion. Um, having said that, I did, I did remember, I, I forget where, who was talking about this, but the idea that a lot of the Marvel films are, are different genres. So right. it's like, you can't yeah. score them all the same. Like, you know, whereas you have like Thor, which is this sort of space fantasy type thing. And then you have Captain America, which is, I mean, after the first one, well, the first one's, you know, World War II, which actually uh, Alan Silvestri also scored that one. Right. Um, which I think he's maybe brought Captain America's theme back. Cause that's his uh, occasionally, but like, yeah, it's like, why isn't that done all the time? Like it should, I mean, it could have, but maybe they weren't thinking that far ahead at the very beginning. Like, you know, when you made Iron Man one, I think that was uh Ramin Javadi who did that one. Like there isn't really a melody. There's kind of like this, which I think they were referencing like the ACDC kind right. of power chord, like type of thing. But yeah, there's no Iron Man like melody. Well, see, that's the thing they used shoot to thrill and back in black to market that film. Like they right, got ACDC yeah. songs and then yeah. they, at the end, you kind of did it into Iron Man by Sabbath, yeah, which was what they were referencing. And I mean, it, I always think about that's where it started was it, it seemed it, Iron Man was this weird nexus between what had come before in terms of mm. superheroes and using like, classic rock as, as a way of, of boosting it. Like I Spider-Man, the Raimi Spider-Man themes, that's Elfman, right? Yeah. Well, the first two are right. But like iconic, right? This great kind of resounding orchestral kind of in the, almost in the same vein as Superman, almost mm-hmm. same kind of sensibility. Whereas now we've got, okay, this is a new nexus. Like we had kind of the, the more R and B poppy, for daredevil right that was much more kind of like pop leaning in terms of the soundtrack i thought like coolio is on that shit right right? like he got cut out of the movie but he's on the the soundtrack 
will be damned if he doesn't get on that soundtrack. But like that, that kind of the nexus being, okay, Iron Man is this new space. And I think first Avenger has great score that those themes I can hear in my head, like that definitely because they're capturing like this wartime and this kind of mournful uh, nature to him. And then I, I think winter soldier, I mean, between winter soldier, like, the cap stuff is great. Like consistency and tone. I really like winter soldier because it goes more for like an espionage bondish, like born mm-hmm. type score because it becomes more about like this kind of spy work kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, One of the similarities I found in that score and like the Jason Bourne scores, cause we studied yeah. some of those, like the, that kind of hybrid, like electronic pulses and percussion, that type of thing where it's like, right. again, like no real melody necessarily, but you're capturing this mood of the, of the genre of the film that you're trying to trying to establish, you know? Right. And I, I think about um, Ragnarok, right? Like as this other kind of techno eighties, crazy, like Taika yeah. using a uh, uh, immigrant song, like the hammer of the gods got a thunder shit. Like Zeppelin's a great conduit yeah. for like this comic book, Norse mythology stuff. Makes you wonder why wasn't that used before the third Thor movie? You know, right. like it was there the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if you're going to do a contemporary score for uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, you're not going to use Misty Mountain Hop. Come on. It's right there. <laughs> like Zeppelin's great for these things. Like, and that's the thing. Like I, I remember the score from Ragnarok. I couldn't, because it's kind of pixelated and kind of this digi digi pop thing mm-hmm. like i i couldn't hum it but i do remember it contributing to like oh he's on this weird world like the the, the uh sakar right like mm-hmm. it's this this weird conflagrate like a melting pot of all of the galaxy's trash you know like that gets dumped here and that the music definitely did that so i i think there's pockets that definitely like and that's the thing i think iron man does have a theme but by the time you get to the third one you've moved away from classic rock because he's so broken Hmm. and it it, the score signals that change in the character but i don't remember any of the any of the score from the third one right um i know black panther had a very specific score very specific sound i really that really contributed to me enjoying that film was that those musical cues and that i mean the put together a great soundscape for that. Like Wakanda had an identity sonically, you know, as soon as you go through that kind of facade into Wakanda, that you get a a sense of the place really quickly. Um, So I I think if you take two seconds to think about the Marvel films, they do have, there are unique things that are being done. Like, yeah. Well, and, and again, yeah, it's like they may not have the most memorable melodies, but it doesn't mean the music is bad and it wasn't effective and it wasn't, you know, like, and I mean, it's almost kind of cool that the only memorable melody is the Avengers theme, you know, right. you kind of, it's almost like everything else is just underscore. And then it's like, boom, when they come together, that's when we get this memorable melody. Um, yeah. And I also, I think what helps is the first time we hear it, is when the opening credits, when we see the word Avengers, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's the other part of it is like, you know, like you said, we don't get that overture. We don't get that moment where we're going to teach you the theme that you have to remember. It's just like, all right, here's the movie. Here's what's happening. And like, you hear different melodies and different stuff going on, but you don't know that you're supposed to remember any of it. You know, you don't, um, you know, and 
you know, you, yeah, you're not sort of like the listener doesn't get sort of told like this music is important, you know? And um, a lot of times I, I think, you know, and again, this is one of the things my teacher brought up today is that like the way stuff is edited now, you know, there isn't space for stuff for the music to kind of come forward for a minute, you know, like if there's dialogue between two people, there's no, there are no pauses between like switching back and forth or when the dialogue ends, the scene cuts immediately to something else. Whereas, you know, back in the day you might have, five seconds to kind of sit in what just happened before it jumps to a new thing. And that's when the music can kind of come up, you know? And mm. so, I mean, like, you know, yeah, like I think that that probably happens with a, a lot of stuff is that the music just has to always stay in the background because there's always something in the foreground from the film that's happening, you know? And it's like, you know, maybe, maybe you get like an establishing shot where we're outside and it's like, cool. Okay. There's nothing happening, but looking at a mountain or a building or something like that, maybe I can come forward for a minute. But even if you do like, are you, are you going to have a theme for what you're looking at outside? You know, mm. like not necessarily, you know, that's, Oh, that's what I was going to say. It's just like, I've never been distracted by a Marvel theme. You know, that's the other thing is like good. Again, that it's, it, there's the, the spectrum of like good scoring can mean that it didn't pull you out of the film. It just contributed right. in the way it did. It wasn't any more remarkable than that, but that's, that's a, 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 uh, an accomplishment, right? Like that's a goal to, as a composer, you could be like, I don't want this to distract only enhance and then fade mm-hmm. away. Like I never remember, like, this is a weird, weird theme to bring in at this moment. You know, it yeah. in the way that like you have about wonder woman, right. that's a distracting thing. It's like, why does she have electric guitar? This isn't an eighties film. Like what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't care if you tell me it's electric cello. It sounds like electric guitar, and it's just right, this right. completely, you know. But yeah, but anyway, that like I said, that that's more just my <laughs> my personal take on that one specific thing. But I feel like yeah, like I don't know, like there's. It, I think it's also tough to like just lump all the Marvel stuff together and be like, oh yeah, Marvel doesn't have that. But it's like, how many other movies have you seen over the past? 10, 15 years that you remember the melody to, you know? And like, you know, a lot of times those don't get just lumped in together and be like, Oh, all these movies also have terrible, like, like romantic comedies, you know, like how often do you remember the music from a romantic comedy, you know? Um, And I I think maybe the difference in this time just clicked with me is that like, I feel like the Marvel movies kind of fall into a similar category to star Wars and Lord of the Rings, you know, because they're these big epic tales that take hours and hours to tell, you know, um, but they're also like a much different setting, you know, like, like Lord of the Rings is this, this very much this world of the past, you know? So I don't think, you know, that, that there is worried with like, well, I don't want this to sound like old movie music because right. it, it is supposed to sound old. Plus just the way it's shot. There are so many just times where like we're gonna watch a bunch of hobbits and people running and shit so it's like yeah there's all this room for music to kind of come forward you know and, and those uh, are great scores i i love oh yeah lord of the rings scores i mean the rohan theme is outstanding yeah. and like again you're getting you get regions from i mean we don't know anything about middle earth going into it cold but the music tells you everything about it rohan sounds like rohan yeah minus tirith sounds like <laughs> minus tirith it's Minus Morgul sounds like Minus Morgul. It's it's just yeah. that's an incredible. There's so many locations and so many moods, right? Like the, I mean, uh, Pippin singing uh, "All Shall Fade" oh, over 
the the Pelennor Fields battle is just the the the, the first one where uh, Fadermir gets wrecked, like right. just gorgeous, sweeping, dramatic, and like I mean that's that's a testament to Peter Jackson has this great sweeping arc, but he'll bring it back to his uh, facial expression, back to eyes, back to intimacy. And yeah. I mean, he's a master at that scale. And I mean, the music is also part of generating that, that I always think yeah. about this grand sacrificial gesture that Faramir is making. Like I will go and defend the gate father, even though I know it's going to kill me. And this, this grand gesture and the, the smallness of the voice, it's a singular voice unaccompanied, setting this whole stage for that scene that I incredible. God, I didn't realize how much I liked that scene until just <laughs> yeah. now. No, yeah, like, it's, it's great. Well, yeah. And that's the thing, like Peter Jackson, I feel like he, he appreciates, you know, and like a lot of the directors, John Williams works with, they appreciate the role that music plays, you know, because I think a lot of directors just, they don't like, they probably like, okay, I have to have music, but, but don't do anything, you know, like, mm. Like, I don't want to know there's music here. I'm supposed to have music for some reason, but I don't want anyone to know that there's music, you know? And, um, you know, I think that that's, that's a big part of it too, is like, I don't know, you know, again, the Marvel movies have had tons of different directors, you know, it's not like, um, you know, it's not like with, with Lord of the Rings where Peter Jackson got to sit down and sort of map out this whole vision, you know, kind of from the front and, you know, Howard Shore, obviously like, you know, I mean, not that he had all the themes written necessarily from the get-go, but knowing you're going to have to write a theme for Rohan and all this other stuff and being able to, like, work that stuff in and integrate it in, you know, it's not like it's not like they had a different director for every Lord of the Rings and they had a different composer for every Lord of the Rings, right. you know, like, obviously, if that was the case, there wouldn't be that cohesion. There wouldn't be those great themes that carry through from film to film, you know. Um, and, you know, and again, I feel like they, they do kind of make it happen somehow with Harry Potter, but, I mean, I also I think that's, like, it's it's still one storyline that's kind of carrying through whereas like with with the marvel stuff it is like different different things they're trying to all pull together too you know like like are we gonna you know i thought about that at one point like what if there was a really good captain america theme and iron man theme and thor theme like would those have all worked together if like when we get to the avengers we're throwing all these themes on top of each other and counterpoint like like, would that have been too cacophonous, you know? And is it better that we don't have, like, all these competing themes and we just have one culminating Avenger theme, you know? like I mean, You would have I'm... had to have, like, a Feige-esque composer. Like, we, like you would have had to have one composer right. working on all of those films. See, that's what like, I want my job to be. I don't that's... want to write all the music for the Marvel <laughs> films going forward, but I want to be, like, the, um, the, the, the music supervisor. Right. Where it's, like okay, like we're going to, you know, if you're going to do this film, you know, we're going to kind of set you up and say like, here's what you have to do because you're doing a, a so-and-so film and that so-and-so needs this theme and that has to work with this and whatever else. Um, I, I feel like there is a missed opportunity too, because with Iron Man's theme, it, it's so rhythmic, you know, because it's just that kind of like guitar power chord esque thing for like strings and everything. Like, you could have had that under something and then had a melody on top. And then, you know, it's like, if you created like different things that weren't all of these focal point melodies, you know, where again, if you have like, you know, if you're going to have these three characters and have themes that are all, you know, melodic themes and very specific, okay, they have to work in counterpoint and all match up together. Or 
Well, Tony has a rhythmic theme. Cap has this kind of like patriotic trumpet fanfare thing. And then, you know, if we give Thor some sort of thing that kind of can sit between those two things that, you know, isn't necessarily melodic, maybe it's more just like a, a some sort of rhythmic chord progression or, you know, something. I feel like there there would be a way to put those pieces together. But I think that's part of it is like not everything has to or not everything gets to be a melody, you know? Right. Um, you just want to Voltron it together into this yeah. epic Avengers thing. That would be really, that would have been really cool. Well, yeah, and, and again, that's part of it is you'd have to do that from the get-go to be like, what is a fully realized Avengers theme that we want that has all these working parts? Okay, we're going to disassemble that and give one piece to each character. Like, okay, Tony, you get the kind of the mechanical rhythm because you're the Iron Man, you're the machine. You know, you get this this chugging, you know, chugging along rhythm. You know, okay, Cap, you get this, you know, this... Um, this fanfare that basically is just arpeggiating chords. So we could actually change those chords to fit whatever the chord progression is. And as long as it has this shape of, you know, we could change that for any chord and and alter the pitches slightly. So it fits into any chord. So we don't have to worry about how that's going to fit. And then, you know, black widow, you know, we get something for you, Hawkeye, you got this, you get this little thing, you know, like, I think it could have, but, but again, like the, even that it still could have been cacophonous, you know, all this stuff coming together as opposed to like, here's this Avengers fanfare that symbolizes they all came together and worked together as a unit, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. And I mean, I love that Silvestri also got to score both of the, uh, you know, um, uh, end game and end game and, and infinity uh, war. war you know and, and maybe that's part of it too you know you had the the russo brothers who were kind of coming up and you know i don't know how much of it was just like that they because they did did they do the first cap or that was that no they, no, did, they did they did two and three soldier was there yeah, yeah okay and then so they yeah did i wonder the, if those two avengers films as well yeah but I mean, they had, you know, they, they had the sensibility to be like, we want the composer who did the first Avengers film, right? Because that's going to sort of tie all this together sonically, you know? And um, plus like, I don't know, and I, not to be like a, a dick about it, but I feel like when you've got Alan Silvestri on one hand and you've got like most of the other composers are kind of like the new, this new generation of composers that are kind of floating around doing all this other stuff. And it's kind of like, okay, like not that they're good or bad, but like, they're not Alan Silvestri. Like, you know, they didn't score back to the future, you know, like, so, I mean, I think just that part of it is like, yeah, if you've got a bunch of like young ish, famous ish composers all trying to make their stamp, of course, they're not going to care about the bigger picture of what these Marvel movies are all trying to accomplish. Whereas when you, you know, get Alan Silvestri in there and say like, yeah, like this is, this is sort of the epic culmination of these 10 plus years of films, you know, we want it to have that, you know, and I, I wonder if that was like how much of a thought that was when they had him do the first one, mm-hmm. or if it was just like, you know, maybe just that in general, like, okay, we got kind of whoever for all these other films, but we want, we want a big name, you know, not necessarily a John Williams or a Hans Zimmer, but who can we get that's like one of the, the big heavy hitters who's, who's got, you know, some decades of experience, you know? And um, so I'm also, so I think, I'd be curious to know if he was like, I want to score space Jesus Thor. That's silly. Like I, I would also be interested to see if he would be like, well, I, I was interested in Avengers because it was 
an event. It was like, okay, right. this is a cool way to lend some gravitas and put like a, a specific stamp of a theme on these characters. And when these, when people come together and call themselves Avengers, this is the signal that right. that's sending. I'm wondering if that, I'm sure people asked him, it was like, do you want to do, I'm sure he had his pick of what he wanted to do in the Marvel universe after the, the Avengers one. Cause it was iconic. It was great. It was, it, yeah. Maybe they, he didn't roll it in age of Ultron. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> nobody wanted to do age of Ultron. That's why we, nobody likes it. <laughs> Nobody's enjoying being in that film. <clears throat> but yeah, like, I feel like what, one of the things that, you know, and, and that's the thing too, is like, I know like Hans Zimmer has his like studio where he has a ton of other composers kind of working under him who will like, work on his projects and do do some composing and some arranging and some orchestrating. And then occasionally if he can't do a film, like, okay, we'll have this person do it. Cause they, you know, I trust them and I vouch for them and they've done my stuff, you know, and it, I almost feel like there should have been maybe someone like that. Like, you know, yeah, like you said, like a, a, a Feige, but for composers, like, you know, if, if, if they had kind of, you know, thought about that music part of it more, like have someone like Alan Silvestri come on and say like, okay, like, you're the one who's kind of in charge of the, the Avengers music, but how does that kind of get divided up amongst the individual stories? And how does that kind of come in? You know, the, yeah, the same way you do with a story that you can't have someone just kind of run off and be like, I want to do this for my film. And it kind of clashes with everything else that's happened, you know? And, yeah. um, but I, I mean, you know, and I like the idea that they have different styles for the different genres. Like one of the other ones that, you know, like a good example of that is like the Jessica Jones series, how it's this kind of jazz noir kind of thing, because that fits her character and her vibe. But again, I don't, I don't remember the melody, but I just know that hearing that style kind of puts you in the vibe of what the the film is. Mm. Uh, So yes, I don't know that it needs a melody, you know, right. I mean, it would have been cool if the four of them had their own melodies so that when the Defenders happen, again, those melodies come together. But again, that could have been cacophonous and a bad idea. So maybe it's good that that didn't happen, you know? I'm also thinking, like, when when a movie is score-forward, that's in the marketing. Like, Birdman was like, I wanted to see Birdman because it was Michael Keaton, but it also had this, like, rhythm to how it was shot Mm. and the delivery of things, and it was like, the score seemed to be a big part of that. When yeah. Baby Driver was advertised, it was an event. It was an idea, like, this is very score heavy. The integration of the score and how the choreography and the blocking and how people move within this film is going to be directly influenced by the score. Mm-hmm. So that was a reason to go see it. I feel like more and more when we get melody heavy or we get score heavy composers or projects that are coming out, it's from the jump, that's a reason to see the movie rather than just yeah. another component of it. There's a, a there's a soundtrack score event film that has become a thing now, which yeah. I, I was just thinking of just outside of the Marvel sphere. Just the idea of like we don't really have the same kind of scores that melodic scores anymore as mm-hmm. as prevalently. But when we do have we're doing something unique with the score, that's a selling point. And that's why you go to see those things. And that's a part of what you talk. Like, I mean, Wes Anderson has a specific like auditory style and what he, when he has somebody put together the music for his films, it's very of a certain era and it's very pristine. It's very like marked, but that's another part of the the palette he's using to paint is, Mm -hmm. is 
and you know that. Like, you know going for Wes, you're going to get a specific kind of soundscape. Same with Tarantino. You know you're going to get this eclectic uh, mixtape that he's made you. Right. And how it integrates with this. Like, it's either going to contrast in interesting ways or have a unique synergy. In a... So I, I think there's, like, there are those kind of melodic things, but they're more when they're a thing, they're more at the forefront rather than kind of like an afterthought or something you discover as you come. It's like, no, this is, this is a music forward score is very important to these films and they don't shy away from that, which I I was just thinking that's kind of interesting. I didn't really think about that. So aliens and shit jokes and vomits and boners and solar opposites and Hulu. Um, are we going too late, man? I don't, I don't want to like, we talked a lot about that. that was a good topic. Yeah. 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 I'm glad, like I said, it was actually a discussion, not just a, a word dump. You know? No, that was, that was, I really liked that. That was awesome. Um, so should we get into a solar opposites? Or oh yeah. We... Okay. Okay. Cool. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, like that was the thing I kind of hit. On, yeah, I think we kind of hit on everything. You know, I, I I wanted to get to the Marvel discussion because I feel like, yeah, like it, it, like when that happened in class, I wanted to be like, but it's just like, all right, that's not the place for me to get on my soapbox right. about the Marvel scores, and and not that I love all of them, but it's just like I feel like it's just so dismissive to just be like, ugh, Marvel music. And it's just like, well, okay, show your work, you know, right? Yeah, <laughs> like and, and not that, and not that I disagree, but but have you actually thought about why the things are the way they are and like acknowledge that, you know, so that that's more my thing is just to kind of, to give it not necessarily even to stand up for it, but to just be like, well, but whose fault is it? I guess, you know? Right. I think there's, there's definitely a a modern, like because Marvel is its own universe, literally. Like, I feel like there's a certain, there's a certain fan of movies. It's like, I'm not dealing with Marvel. I don't want to touch it. It's, mm-hmm. it's an easy target. I can generalize about it. I don't have to interact with it. I feel like there are people who are just like, I'm, I'm done. I don't want to access that. I'm just going to like. Right. And I mean, okay, that's fine. I, yeah. It's not for you. It's not for everyone. Yeah. There, right. It's for and, a and lot that's of us. part of it too. Like, yeah. Like I don't, it's not like when I was in my twenties and I was like, why isn't the matrix blowing everyone's mind? It's like, right. yeah, it's not for everybody, but it's like, yeah. Like when people be like, oh, the matrix was stupid. It's like, I don't know that it's stupid. Like if you're, if you're not into it, like not that you have to be into it, but like just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's, it's the quality is bad or whatever, you know? And I feel, I feel like that's sometimes what happens with Marvel too, is like, you know, like, Oh, this one movie didn't do what I wanted it to do or, you know, or whatever, you know, again, we don't have to get into all that part of it, but yeah, I feel like if it's not for you, that's fine. But like, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I like some of the bond stuff, but I don't love all of it, but I'm not going to be like, Oh, you know, this bond movie was fucking shit. You know, it's like, like, I don't have to watch it. Like, (laughs) you know, like, and not that I think there's one that's shit, but I I definitely like, like I've seen some of them and and they're fine and I like them and they're, they're, they're cool. But like, I don't, if, if they haven't like grabbed me by the throat and said, we're fucking awesome. I'm not like, Oh, that's the film's fault. It's, it must be bad. If I haven't like become a huge bond fan and have to like dive into the whole cat thing. It's just like, yeah, it's like it, it operates on a level that's appealing in some ways, but, and 
doesn't grab me in other ways. And, and that's fine. Like that's not the movie's fault that I'm not as interested as, as other people are in it, you know? And like, like I, I appreciate your fan of the bond, you know, films and they, they, like I said, they haven't grabbed me that same way, but that's not a reason for me to like criticize them because like, well, why don't I like them the way you like them? There must be something wrong with them that they haven't appealed to me. Right. You know, like, And that's the thing, like, Marvel at this point, right? Like if you haven't seen any, or if you've seen one or two and you didn't like them, like it's, it's a monolith at this point, yeah, like don't bother. <laughs> in, the, in the same, in the same way bond is right. Like the, the yeah. idea is the references and the things that they're making in, in terms of in, I mean, it's, we can't watch these films without context anymore. That, that critique and that conversation is rapidly no longer holding any weight because yeah. the, it doesn't have to have broad appeal. It doesn't have to make sense mm-hmm. outside of the context of these universes because that it's the end. It's the means and the end is to make it more broad and more integrated and more uh, uh, twisty turny and like it, yeah. self-referential mm-hmm. in, in Which, some ways yeah. that's good. And sometimes that some ways it's bad, but like, you're not like, Oh, I don't like those. Is like, it's a huge thing to say. I don't like those. Cause there's so many of them. But right. it's also like if you're going to interact with the franchise, like if you watch Loki right now, having seen nothing right. else, you're fucking lost. Right. I I was lost and I've seen everything, you know, like. And and that's the thing is like I've been waiting my whole, I don't want to say my whole life, but since I've been taking in, you know, visual media, like I've been waiting for stuff like that. You know, there, there are decades upon decades of stupid shit that you can watch one half hour TV show or one two hour long movie and be over and done with it. So go watch that shit. You know, like yeah. I don't think it's the responsibility of Marvel to cater to people who don't want to watch every film that's out there. You know, it's like, if that's your, if that's a problem for you, don't watch them and go watch something else that you can be one and done. Like, that's fine. You know, like it's just um, something like the financial like component of it's like they don't need to they get right. all of the nerds money because we see right. it five or six times yeah and that's that's they realize we'll that see re- it for you right we will that's the thing they realize that repeat customers that's what they need they just need the majority they don't need everybody right <laughs> they just need most of us and they yeah. got us you know well, that's the thing, like, and, and what, what I appreciate too, is they're making it for the fans. And I feel like that's what the fans want is to be, have this Immersed. series of film that's part of this bigger universe, not be like, well, we want to make Thor three so that you don't have to see any other Marvel film, only Thor three. And you'll be completely understood in what's happening around you. Like, like, no, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that with star Wars. I wouldn't going to be like, I'm going to watch just, you know, I've never seen a star Wars film, but I'm going to watch rogue one and expect to know what's going on and expect to know the, you know, the, the, the weight of everything that's happened, you know, and be like, you know, like expect to like appreciate, you know, the state of the universe at this point, you know, like, you know, and be like, Oh, well, I, who's that guy in, in all black at the end? And why does he have a red laser sword? Like, that's stupid. I don't understand that. That's, that's bad storytelling, you know, like, like, no, it's just, you can't watch a single film in a vacuum. If it's part of a series, you know, like, I would be really fascinated to see somebody who's not seen anything of Star Wars watch Rogue One <laughs> because I actually think that's a good entrance into it. Like it's it's modern. It doesn't have the same like 
there's there's with new hope there's definitely a pay we are not talking about solar opposites we have talked <laughs> for like two and a half hours on jesus Sorry, but like I will finish this thought. Like it's it's a great. It's not saddled with the pacing problems with New Hope. If you're starting people with New Hope now, they're bored because the beginning of that movie is so long, and Luke Mm -hmm. is so whiny, and there's just so much to get to the juice of it. Like it's it's no longer accessible in that way. Rogue One, you understand the stakes. And you understand it's part of this bigger universe and it feels lived in and it feel it has the aesthetic of the old films and it's got camera work where it's, it's really kind of, and I think if you've never seen Tarkin before, that rendering is excellent. Though I mean, mm. you, you like, you don't have the uncanny Valley of expectation if you start with that. So yeah. it, it's, that'd be an well, interesting that, place to start. That's also a perfect example too. Like why did they use a computer generated guy? Why didn't they just have some other person play that role? Right. So, He's dead. Because this person is a character, you know, five minutes from now in in the first film that came out back in 1977. Like, like, yeah, like, yeah, of course there's stuff you're not going to get if you're, again, if you're viewing it in isolation, you know, like. So Solar Opposite. Solar Opposite. <laughs> this is a strange show. It's, it's one that I kind of saw. Because it's Hulu. Like, I saw it, like, very kind of vaguely advertised on stuff. And I had seen that it was from the, the cr- creators of Rick and Morty, Justin Roiland. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was fascinated by that. as like, but it was one of those things, like, the first season it all dropped. And I just kind of waited and waited. I, I, I would put Rick and Morty kind of expectations and, like, baggage on it. Um, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can really invest in another Rick and Morty type story. Because that story yeah. is exhausting i enjoy it it's stimulating but it's it's a lot there's a lot of content there's a lot of drama a lot of baggage a lot of depression like there's some heavy there's some post-credit stuff or like right into the credit stuff on that show that just makes you feel like shit and so rick and morty is not always like an entertain like a, a joyful entertaining experience right so to watch this show which is there's none of that. There's no, there's, there's no reverence. There's no large, like uh, you're not depressed. There's, you're not dealing with a, an aging, jaded fucking uh, narcissist and nihilist. Like you're dealing with these four aliens that are Schlurpians, two adults and two replicants, Corvo, Yumulak, Terry and Jesse and the pupa. I love that Terry and Jesse. Terry like, and Jesse, you know, like two regular ass names, two two like alien names, you know. Yeah. Well, it's it's like the best uh, uh, best setup for a band, right? Cheap trick: two attractive guys, two ugly guys. The ugly <laughs> guys are really entertain, like really talented, and the uh, good looking guys you put on the album cover for to sell to girls. Like that, yeah. it's it's an old an old standard. <laughs> um, but it was so cool. Like it's so kind of surreal and all it like it, it hits you really quick it makes jokes faster than you can realize them so rewatching, you get pick up on new stuff it's really fast it's really kind of it's kind of unbridled and it's dealing with the kind of sci-fi convention stuff that i enjoy about rick and morty but it's none of the exhausting commentary it's just mm-hmm. it's just aliens kind of being shitty in the world and interacting with humanity and getting things wrong and being really excited about certain things. And it, it, 
I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really unique show. It's one that I'm I'm glad is getting more. I mean, they don't even like they're they're Animaniacs level in terms of like referencing Hulu now that like the new Animaniacs oh, yeah. is like very self referential. It's like they know what they're on, and they also like have these sections for like ad breaks. And there's a couple times where they'll break the fourth wall. Is like this was just really awkward for you if you had you pay for premium, huh? <laughs> seems like you shouldn't have bothered <laughs> the ad break makes more sense <laughs> um yeah so like i this is i i think i watched maybe three or four months after it had aired i watched the first season i watched it over and over and over again i think it was delayed a little bit for covid reasons to get the second season but when I, it dropped it was like they expanded things it's it's great it's a show that just constantly surprising very very unique in its sense of humor. I like I like the voice actors. I like I like the dynamic of the characters and how they separate things and the reference story structure. Like there's one where everybody's doing like a gender specific storyline and Yemilak's like, no, I, I refuse to participate right. in it. This is too much. And yeah. you kind of see him, he's in the background of these sequences. You don't really see what he's doing, but you know that he's not participating in the trope that everybody else is. And I just I I like that stuff. And it, it it's yeah. It is doing that thing without pointing at the fact that it's doing it. I feel like, again, Rick and Morty is very much, this is the thing we're doing. Oh, and look at how terrible the implications of the thing that we're doing are and sit with that for a while. Like, I don't, I feel so good after Solar Opposites because nobody's been, it, it, it reminds me of like Bugs Bunny, like the mm-hmm. Looney Tunes kind of level of violence and ridiculousness and everything's okay at the end. Well, it, and it's almost weird too. Like, I feel like the, part of what the seriousness with Rick and Morty is like, you know, they're, they're humans on earth. And I feel like they will do things that will like, you know, they've done things that have fucked up earth, you know, like it's like, Oh, we got to go to a different earth or whatever, you know? And, um, but like with, with uh, solar opposites, it's like, you're, you're kind of in it with them. So even though they're on our planet, like I almost view it like, like I'm with them, like on an alien planet. So if they do stuff that fucks people up, it's like, Oh, whatever. It's not their planet anyway. You know, like, so it's like, I, I feel less bad when, when humans get fucked up because I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm seeing it through their eyes, you know, it's like, Oh, this isn't our planet. We're just stuck here for now anyway, you know? (laughs) So I, I, you, you finished the whole series. Yeah. And the holiday special and the holiday special. Okay. I, I, went to rewatch the holiday special today in preparation. Like I, I, I love this series. I, I love the um, exploration of the wall. And that's a whole thing. Like I, I love the saga of the wall and how that kind of, it really crept up because in the first couple of episodes, they kind of reference it. It's there. And then we get a POV of it and we follow Stu or whatever his name is all the way up. And that that's really interesting. And that's kind of where there's some gravity too, is like this societal problems. And, but there's silly things like uh, oh, the girl was Sherry. What's her name? I can't remember the. Uh, oh yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sherry day, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Like, so she is a hibachi chef from Benihana. So she has this skill set. And then in the second one, when they're like investigating the murders in the wall and stuff, like there's a dude who was an executive producer on bones or something like, so <laughs> yeah. he's like, right. Like approaching things. So it's all like, even within that context, there's like these little niche jokes or the, these little microcosms of like how 
how comedic would it be if these people got shrunk down and interacted in this way and then made like they were an investigative like detective that i i love that aspect but i think the holiday episode is one of the greatest meta holiday episodes ever and who better to do it than these like i there's so many lines from this holiday special in in particular that were just so great like yeah like talking about not I I will I only remember movies where the plot is they steal the Declaration of like I erase my memory of all of their plots that don't involve stealing the Declaration of Independence like <laughs> out, outstanding and then like Corvo so being specific. like he's like we didn't jingle all the way we have to go back to the jingle verse and this time jingle all the way like just the the those little kind of touchstone phrases and Yemilek being turned on that they have a dead tree in the living room. Just like these little, they can go any direction with it because it's like they're aliens. So whatever bizarre thing, like their assumptions about like what Christmas means and the things that they like mm-hmm. about it. And then like they're talking about like their, their 4th of July spirit got dangerously low and now they don't support the troops. Just like, I love that any, all of these premises and all these jokes that they make, they follow to the most extreme and awful end and you're laughing. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it, it, I love that construct. It's like, what if this, the, uh, always sunny or Seinfeld, what if those characters were aliens and were as awful as those characters? Like, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I, exactly what I was thinking. I feel like Rick and Morty is definitely like the, the, it's always sunny where it's like you watch it and you're, you're laughing, but you're also hurting on the inside. Right. <laughs> like these, the, these are thoughts people had. <laughs> like, they wrote this. It may not have happened in real life, but they wrote it. <laughs> but yeah, and I, and I also love that too. Like yeah, like that commentary on on human customs from that outsider. You know, I mean, I mean, you even get a little bit of that at the beginning when he's like, "I hate this planet." You know, it's a terrible place to live, and he's always yeah. got a different thing that he hates. Uh-huh. You know, and it's like it's like, oh yeah, like those are those are all reasons to hate this planet. You know, and and yeah, like the the way of you know kind of understanding our our rituals and our holidays from an outside perspective is just like, yeah, like you're right. This is, this is how someone would assume this, this whole thing works based on looking at it with no prior knowledge. And you're right. It is, it is stupid, <laughs> you know? Right. And it's just interesting. Like the man cave is a great construct. Just oh, I like love that. Great yeah. random sci-fi bullshit and re re <laughs> big old dicks, <laughs> big old dicks, like, or it's <laughs> like big old dicks. I, it's just that. I love that. And just the degree to which they got it wrong and also like how they built that robot and Corvo have, and Terry having these reactions of like wanting to be babied and wanting to be dominated. And like, it's also a, a commentary on gender roles and it's, but it's not beating you over the head with it. It's just like, look at what these aliens in our world are doing. Like, this is what they are getting from TV is like, this is what, a woman should be this is like the reason to have a man cave is for her to hate it and the reason right. it's there is for her to hate like that the little site and the the notebook or the lake house device sending <laughs> stuff back in time or the the retouch your stuff elizer where he, he has he goes back he has this device that he could poke his wallet back into the ship and <laughs> it has these wild connotations and it, it, you don't feel as bad as you do with like the snake jazz episode of Rick and Morty, right? Like, Oh yeah. Rick Morty goes up there. He fucks shit up that snake. He, and he, he takes a human, like a, an earth snake and sends it back to that culture. 
and fucks up that whole ecosystem and it becomes Terminator nonsense. Like, I, I think Solar Opposites is just unfettered in that way. It doesn't have that gravity and bec- that remove is so important. Um, I love the one where Corvo becomes a, a mu- magician, just kind of like out of <laughs> nowhere. It's just like, and then that becomes the central plot is just like interactions with him, like having this, the, he's too good at it. And he's going to go through this like black hole and stuff. Like it, it's, I love that. Um, I love Yumulak and Jesse go like doing puberty stuff into oh, like yeah. the, 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 even you're doing the, the motion, but like the, the flowers coming out of their head, oh, and yeah. like pheromones and like those interactions being awful. And like, then oh, as long as they don't mix, then we'll be fine. Of right. course. <laughs> and then, um, like they, they have summer school inadvertently. They just go to school cause they don't understand that there's like a summer vacation and then there was fucking the principal and the teacher who were constantly just like fucking and just like awkward and gross. And like, I love it. it it's just, it's so bizarre. And it's great. Cause again, because they're aliens, these aren't things that they would say to human children, but they're aliens. So they, you, they can be as perverse and abusive as they want. But see, I think that's part of it. What I've noticed with that, like the way, they treat the kids like I feel like it's commentary on like like America and immigration because yeah. like how you know they'll be he'll be there and he'll just fucking like tell them off like they're adults and be like but you know but basically there's this kind of like I have to accept that you're here but I fucking hate it and I'm gonna do everything I can to make you feel shit like shit about it and like like was I think the one where they're doing the racing you know when yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forget exactly what he says but the way he like tears into them about like you know, like winning the the contest or something like that. And, and it's just like, you could tell, like, you know, he just, he hates that he's there, but like, but yeah, there's this acceptance of like, yeah, we get a couple of alien kids at our school. Right. Which is, which is odd at first. Like, why doesn't that, but it's just like, Oh, this is like a metaphor for like, you know, teachers having like, Oh, I wish there weren't so many like immigrant kids at my school, but I, I'm not, I can't say anything about it. But I, but I fucking hate you. And I want you to know I fucking hate that you're here, you know? And it's just like, it was like, fuck, like, you know, and, and yeah, like I was watching this being like, this is so much lighter than Rick and Morty, but like, right. it's like that. I'm like, fuck, nope. It's got that, that thing <laughs> part of it too. Like, okay, it's there. Like, yeah, I hadn't made that, that association. That's, I, that it's naturally there. That, that's not even a stretch. Like, of course, that's, that's the commentary being made. That's, yeah. It's incredible. Um, I really love the pupa. I love the pupa and the quest for the Harry Potter uh, whistle <laughs> that is just behind a, a childproof lock. They just keep taking it away. And he keeps like fucking up some people emotionally. Like not even that, like he, he's selfish because he's doing it for that end, but he ends up helping people through that like peyote weird trippy thing that he does with the, the older woman. And yeah. then in uh, the Christmas episode where he, reunites the the son who tried to come out to his dad and that family and it's just great because it's like these big stakes and he's supposed to eat the world the, the premise is like the pupa gestates and grows and when it reaches maturity it destroys the planet that they've landed on and terraforms it to be like uh slurp slurpian slurpa slurp yeah. I, I don't there's slurpy in i planet slurp yeah that's planet slurp yeah Let's let's use that uh, consonant combination a few more times. It's a gross yeah. word, um, <laughs> but it's cool because you kind of 
through the pupa, because the pupa is kind of like the deus ex machina for the wall stuff. When he is taking an in interest in what's happening in the wall, people end up prevailing and, and doing heroic stuff. So it's cool to kind of see him as this like eminent threat. Eventually he'll fuck some shit up, shit up and destroy the world. But he's kind of having the most human experience of any of them. You know, and that that's kind of cool and philosophical. That's the thing. I think what appeals to me about it is it's just, it's making points. It's not saying anything about them. It's mm-hmm. just here they are for you to see. And I think that's, I'm, I'm definitely in meta fatigue between, between Matrix Resurrections and <laughs> the newest Scream. I was done. The newest scream is just like so up its own ass and so trying to to tell you how hard it is to make a scream film now, mm. and it it's just like just make it, just stop stop commenting on it and try. Right. Stop telling me how difficult it is to do because that that's that's what I love about Solar Opposites. It's like yeah, there's all these right like when they're doing the uh, the glass ceiling thing, like Jesse's trying to shatter a glass ceiling. Oh, and it's yeah. just like how men have overtaken the feminist movement and that they're they're the ones speaking. Like, it's just so interesting to see, like, them try to do that trope of an episode and it failing, but they're also still making the commentary within it. it that's It's just fascinating. And it's just there. It's, it's not... It, it's not belaboring the point, you know? It's just moved on to the next thing, you know? Yeah, like the, I like the comment when she first assigns that homework, and she's like, "What? Only the girls have to? What? Don't the boys have to just draw a picture of a lightsaber or something? Oh, might as well find out now that life is easier for men." You know? <laughs> and it's just like, it's just like, yeah, like just there, just gonna drop it, just sit on it. You know, you deal with that. You know, like no, no, uh, no more explanation necessary. It's just it makes the point and moves on. It's yeah, yeah. the wall is just such a, an interesting construct. Like yeah. it, it's so. And that, that's, I think that's where I kind of started to fall in love with the show even more. Cause it was just like, oh, they're not so precious about just doing random alien shit. They're like, this is some long form storytelling within the wall. And it, there's some stakes to it. Like I, it, in any other show, they would have just been, yeah, they got people in the wall. Like that is, we wouldn't see that POV at all. Yeah. And that I really enjoyed that. I also like, have you read like the episode descriptions where there's one where it's like, oh, something about they get a bear from the zoo and craziness ensues. Like that's the description of the episode, but that's one of the first episodes that takes place completely in the wall. Right. And occasionally you see stuff through the windows about right. there's a bear and stuff happening, but that's not at all like what, well, another one is like something like, oh no, it's, you know, craziness ensues when Terry breaks his favorite shot glass. And that's oh. the one with like the, um, uh, the, the the two of them when they had gotten outside the wall that whole right. ep- flashback episode and then at the very end when he what is he like blow the head off that um that possum and yeah. it startles terry and he drops his shot glass. Oh, no. oh no my favorite shot glass and that's like the only <laughs> reference to that but that's like the episode description <laughs> that's that's great it just like it there it seems like they're having fun with it like with yeah. that show it just seems like let's let's tell a serious kind of story like an epic within the wall, but have those little jokes, those little flourishes on the other outside of it. It's, it's great. I... Yeah. Just to remind <laughs> you what show you're actually watching. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also like, like, I like the, um, 
the mix. I know that, I don't know, like someone out there appreciates that I noticed this, but like the mix of sort of real life size stuff that's put in with shrunken people versus the things they had on them. So they also got shrunken right. down, yeah. you know, that, that every now and then someone will have an actual pencil because right. it's like, Oh, if that pencil was in their pocket or like how, uh, what's her name? Like she has her knives right. from, from what's it. So she must've been like coming home or at work when she gets shrunken down. So she has the knives with her, um, you know, stuff like that versus all of the giant things because it's regular size and they're small. Like I love like, like seeing the interaction between those things and how, how they play on how they've built a life with those things. And right. And so, I mean, Jesse constantly putting candy in there and like upsetting oh, yeah. diabetic, like it, it's all sugar and they're all right. burning it yeah. out and crashing. And because that's all there is to eat, you know, like that, that's also the, the way that they kind of expanded that world and kind of thought about all of these different elements yeah. and how it would work. And like, how value in a hierarchy would work and what would be valuable in that. And then like a religion starts, like it's all very like quick, all how these things kind of construct themselves, but it, it was, it's fascinating that they thought through, okay, like Jesse's a kid, right? Like a replicant right. she's in her, like candy would seem to be the, the currency of her peer group. So that's what she would naturally put it in. But like, if you're diabetic, and all you right. have is these giant candy canes. Yeah. Like you got to eat something, you know, like this is really interesting. That fucking, the, the, when they flood the wall and oh that fucking hamster dies, that's fucking the saddest a, thing. That, yeah. It's little leg twitching. Cause like, it's like how it bumps its head. Like it used to do in the leg, like doing the scratch. I was just like, no, no. I was like that. That was like, to me, like, oh, that was the other thing I said too. When that part happened, I was like, oh, is she going to put her paw up and it's going to say not Penny's boat on her paw? Because <laughs> that was like, I feel like they were referencing that scene from Lost where it was just like, you know, I feel like those two were on par for like the emotional level of like, you know, okay, like, yep, you're in there safe and I'm out here drowning. Like, fuck you. <laughs> and it's like I said, with, with the pupa and the wall, like, Anytime it's just like, oh, it's too cruel that like the, the, the hero, the only chance of like upsetting the balance is gone. Then the pupa is watching and can save. Like, I, I think it's a great way of it's reasonable that the stakes are, are as large as they are, but also you can write it like you write a TV show because it's actually being observed by a character who is big enough to make a difference in, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like it, it actually puts the pupa in the PO, like of a view, a viewer watching these things go out. And, and yeah. I think it escapes kind of it being too morbid or too cruel because pupa acts and isn't at, like, will act in the best interest of the morally superior, or like the good person in, in those. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of funny. Like, I don't know. Yeah, if that's part of the commentary is that, like, it seems like, first of all, the youngest of them and the one with the least sort of, like, understanding and experience tends to be the best person of them. Right. You know, but then again, yeah, sometimes when it's doing the right thing, it's for its own ends, you know, and it's like, which you could look at that and be like, oh, like, you're only doing this for your own benefit. But it's like, but you're still leaving a bunch of good stuff in your wake, you know, so like, is is being selfish really that big of a problem, you know? And, now I'm thinking about the the emergency urbanizer episode where they're in they go to 
they're gonna like here's camp and they get lost and then they make <laughs> it into a woods and then it's it they play out three different like new york based like movie plots in rapid succession <laughs> he keeps just trying to be a gangster yes! and the fucking wolf is coming after him constantly. i love that and it's the thing like every time <laughs> every time they set it up you're like oh, okay now he's gonna get to do gangster shit oh now no it's just he's just continuing to get attacked by the wolf oh so good <laughs> <laughs> oh i before i forget i want to mention my favorite moment where they did the fucking um uh, Arrested Development reference, where Terry's like, "I can read," he couldn't. It does the little ukulele. I was oh like, yeah, yeah, no, you fucking didn't. <laughs> he couldn't. Right, that's right. <laughs> oh, that's such a little moment. <laughs> you blink and you miss. That's the other thing. Like it's so rewatchable because you blink and yeah. you miss things. Like I, even down to Terry's T-shirt. Right, every episode he's got a different T-shirt on. I love that. Um, and then there's the one where it's like uh, I think it's the last episode of the second season where they're like worried that the pupas like changed color and it's he's, mm-hmm. they're gonna explode and die and they're worried about like an afterlife and stuff he's just like sharpening a knife the whole time <laughs> just like menacing them with a knife this whole time <laughs> and it's like this is why you don't take my fucking flute away you assholes like well and i love too that they the whole time they're not worried about dying they just want to be fulfilled before they die right you know they've accepted yeah. that, that like so they're not trying to kill the pupa and like get the knife away from it right and then like just how like innocent and sweet it is it's like oh they come back as trees and like right i love the i also love the thing too like well what's the pupa doing now? you're supposed to be the pupa expert yeah. like it keeps coming back to it. it's like fuck you terry you're the one who's supposed to know this shit stop asking us <laughs> and then he'll like oh maybe we just had to all hate keith as a family <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then they do the um the nanobots episode where oh like, yeah it's been through all of your poops <laughs> for you guys to help you. They become sentient and goes to the board meeting. Like the home. And that one stuff. old woman is immune because, oh, she's an old lady. She doesn't drink water. She right. drinks Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I think one of my favorite jokes is when they're in the mank cave and he goes to the freezer is like, we're going to kick back with a cold one. Oh, it's yeah. It's just an ice cube in the shape of a one. They're just a couple of cold ones with the boys. And it's just, I love that. Cause it's just so like, it's just a little off in all of these ways. <laughs> what I also love about that episode too, is that like Corvo, so much of the time he's like the alpha. Yeah. And he's always tearing down like everyone else, mostly Terry. But then that episode with like, like, uh, um, um, what's his name? Shit. I just, I, for, I had his name a second ago. The, the guy who does the voice of the guy across the street who has the 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 tig old biddies sign right um, i don't uh, remember ken that. reno oh yeah and and how like corvo is just like you know like oh like like obsessed with kind of like him and his life and you know which makes him want but like how it's like oh oh yeah no no i i, I totally get it yeah like you know and like how both of them are just kind of like they want to be like they want to impress and be liked by him and you know and so like that that alpha aspect of corvo drops away and like you know that guy is the alpha to him you know like right. um so it's so funny to see him like that to see him kind of subservient you know in that in that sense and like um you know 
Yeah, and like how that that whole yeah the whole thing kind of putting the cart before the horse, like oh well, we want a man cave, and it's like well, you don't have a man cave so that you can have a, a wife robot to hate it so you can enjoy right. it. Like you know he he needs that escape, but it's like well then you know maybe you shouldn't be in this marriage to begin with. Like, right. that... <laughs> and I also like that they're, they're like bad aliens. Like they go to see the other Schlorpians in oh, Europe. Yeah. On the platform, the floating platform is fucking hilarious. It's like, no, I like using the platform. We're gonna ride it. It's so slow, Corpo. <laughs> no, we're riding the platform. <laughs> and then they get there, they're like, they're acting like aliens would, like in total like fear right. of what humanity would yeah. do. And it's funny because like Corvo and them in America are just like, whatever. Like nobody's fucking with us other than the kids at school. Like and I guess that's that's how they win. She wins the HOA Association presidency. Is like, did you guys like this sci-fi shit? Let's just go back to normal bullshit. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's interesting to see that dynamic with Corvo kind of wanting to be traditional. And I, mm-hmm. that I mean, that's another kind of commentary on immigration and integration and whitewashing and also like, um, oh, what is it called? Uh, um, not integration. They, they did oh, it to uh, appropriation, appropriation, but also uh, D. De... It's like conditioning that they did uh, with Native American people to like erase their heritage, and, oh, and they, right. I can't remember. There's a word for it, but <laughs> like it's also a ta- that episode is about that. Like there's Schlorpian ideals and Schlorpian values, and it's Corvo feels guilty for not doing that because he's in a new environment, learning new things and trying to adjust to that. And I think it's a great episode for that. And it's also great to see, like, this is how we traditionally think of aliens, like being afraid and like how they want to interact with the world because they're ultimately trying Mm -hmm. to destroy it and having no participation with American or human culture. And then the, the solar opposites. I, I love that they call themselves the solar opposites, right. too, like <laughs> in another kind of like meta, meta, meta thing. But it, it, it they have more embraced their. I mean, they misinterpret and misunderstand how human culture works. But they're trying, and they're they're making mm-hmm. new associations, and they're putting things together, and like it's it's great. Like Taco Tuesday, where he, he's just like so gung ho about it, and they're like, "Fuck you, Corvo! We don't want to do this, especially because you just want us to read manuals all day." Yeah. Well, and part of what I also love about that too, it is kind of the the flip side because I mean, I mean, you know, I, I agree that you know we shouldn't try to take away other people's culture, but I feel like for me, with my experience in terms of like traditions and culture, like. Like no one told Corvo he couldn't do that stuff anymore. He stopped doing it for whatever right. reason and then felt guilty because there were other people doing it, not because he actually wanted to maintain those traditions. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Like, that's part of what I liked about that was like, oh, oh, wait, I should be doing these things. It's like, well, why? You've been not doing them for all along and kind of everyone else like, you know, uh, both being like, well, if you want to do those things, do them. But it's like, don't make us do them just because you feel guilty that you haven't been doing them, you know? And like, so like, that was kind of what I really liked from, you know, yeah, from the perspective of you have, you know, traditions that you think you should be upholding, but you don't want to anymore. Like, yeah, fucking don't. Why? Like, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interest. It would be interested in the analog to like generational trauma and being part of, immigrant family and those kind of expectations and having those kind of traditions. I, 
this show is a lot deeper than I, I think I've ever sat down and thought about. Like I, I just watch it because it's it's shiny and dumb and fun, but it, it's not dumb. Like it, it's it's really well crafted, and it yeah. I also love you know yeah my other favorite thing, and I feel like this is the difference between. I think they're probably making fun of the difference between this and um, uh, Rick and Morty is like how they refer to it as sci-fi shit. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Like, like it's not like technology to like, Oh yeah, we're going to do some sci-fi stuff. Like, whereas I feel like, yeah, like Rick, Rick and Morty kind of gets up its own ass about having to explain things like kind of the way, yeah. like sometimes I feel like Star Trek does where it's like, we have to make sure before we use a piece of tech in this story, this fictional story about the future that we can have fun, some way to justify it in in reality somehow based in reality where they're just like no it's sci-fi shit i have a ray like the, 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 was it the the radical awesome terrific ray like no that's yeah. the rat ray not the <laughs> rat you know, like like they just happen to have this gun like the do the, the these guns that do these different things and they're not gonna bother explaining they don't care they don't have to talk about quantum mechanics or anything like whatever it's just sci-fi shit you know right. like that that's one of my favorite things that that works into it that it's just like yeah, that they're referring to it as science fiction, even though to them it's not fiction. It's it's stuff that it's their actual science that actually that's actually happening, you know. But it's it's for us, you know. Like we're gonna do some sci-fi shit, <laughs> right? Yeah, Rick Rick and Morty definitely belabors the like hard sci-fi yeah. components of it, and they yeah, it, it's, yeah. Star Trek is very similar in that way. That's also another good like score. Like I, I love the scoring of the original Star and Next Generation too. Like. I like mm-hmm. those kind of triumphant themes and like how they they'll they'll swell into like a commercial break and then come back in like I I like that it's that another theme scoring uh melody and theme conversation. Yeah. But, um I was thinking about uh, the the nice ray and and the, the Yumulac clone I like that too and like uh Jesse trying to make Corvo a better person with like the making people that were mean to him nice to him and then they have yeah. to fucking destroy the fucking biker gang like i don't want to be doing this he's got the fucking uh defense spikes mechanism just... <laughs> spikes i forgot about that <laughs> i told chris about that i was like you would have liked this episode <laughs> they, they murdered a bunch of white supremacists in a bar <laughs> it, it was good too because i feel like yeah like the lesson is kind of like you know she it was like she had to like kind of lie to him to convince him that the world isn't as bad as he kind of thinks it is, you know, right. and like, which I feel like that in and of itself is an interesting point, but then also like, you know, like that, that idealized like, Oh yeah. What if we did live in a world where if you were an asshole for no reason, like you just got slaughtered, like, wouldn't that be kind of nice? <laughs> <laughs> like, There's a sci-fi catharsis to it. Yeah. <laughs> Life need not be only miserable in the post-apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably about enough of that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great show. I, I enjoy it a lot. I'm, I'm glad you got to see it. I'm excited to see more of it. And it's also like, because yeah. you finished it like weeks ago and I, I've been rewatching it and stuff, but like, mm-hmm. it, we're not going to remember every detail about it. And we talked a lot about the, the score conversation, Melody. That was, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm really satisfied with this one. It's a good one. Yeah. So, Without further ado, here's Tim with the final word. Harry Potter whistle. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs>
it's such a feeble little whistle. It really is. It's like it's like the recorder version of My Heart Will Go On that they used on yeah. Vines. Do, 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 do. That shit. It's just so it's great. And it's silly looking. It's just like it's so impractical looking. It's, it's, it's got like all of Hogwarts on it. Like who thought they're like, oh, we need to put all of Hogwarts for it to be a Harry Potter whistle. He's this little blob just holding it in his little hand. He's so happy to just have yeah. this little thing. Like, I don't know why, but that reminds me of, like, our little girl cat. Like, she, you know, just, like, where, you know, it's, like, she'll just kind of be, like, oh, happy, like, doing something, like, either playing with a certain toy, and it's just, like, that's all she wants. And it's, like, you know, like, yeah, like, it, you know, the fact that they, like, don't want him to have it, and it's, like, you know, who, who got it for him? You know, and it was just, like. <laughs> it's just because they don't want to hear it. It's not <laughs> any other reason than that. There's no reason for him not to have it. It just yeah. irritates them. <laughs> oh, the dumb Ray. I'm definitely editing this back in, but like the, when they, they shoot Corvo with the dumb Ray and he's like, throw like they're going to college. Oh, that's and right. Yeah. Terry wants to have like a dumb college experience. And Corvo's like, no, we got to study. Like you actually want to go to college. Let's do college. And so I like that. Cause he just gets dumber and dumber. Mm-hmm. he's like, no, I'm fine now. I'm okay now. <laughs> I love too, that like, I mean, and there, there are elements of this in Rick and Morty where it's like, the 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 stakes are lower because like i feel like there are tons of times where they've like died but like oh they can bring him back to life like the one was yeah like like that one where there was the clone of yumulak and she killed the wrong one because she thought it was like the the clone but it was actually her brother and then like okay i gotta bring him back it's like okay you can bring him back that's that's the kind of world this is that's fine so like there's like a hint of the seriousness but not not really you know oh that was something else i was gonna say with the sci-fi shit where it reminds me of marvin the martian because he talked about his modulator all the time. Like you knew it was, he had technology and stuff. Like he would like plant little Martians or dodos or like the, his uh, Martian dog, right? Like he would plant Mm -hmm. little seeds and you just, you didn't know what the, it was, but you just went with the sci-fi mechanic and he had that giant telescope, like pointed at earth to shoot the mod, like the the incinerator device at it. Like it just reminded me of that. And it's the same way. Like, because they can die and come back and it's no big deal. It's the anvil on uh, uh roadrunner and coyote. Like it's yeah. just, they're, they're, they're able to come back in that way. And it's, yeah. it's really nice. It's nice to have that thing where it comes back to zero every time. Yeah. 